And I got a lot of respect for you, and it's hard for me to say that. But I'll tell you what, anytime you want a rematch with me, I would love the opportunity for you to take me to my limit. Now I want to shake your hand. He's Team Taz through and through. He's about to get the beating of his life in the hands of Sabu and Rob Van Dam. Bob, you don't do it. You may be better off just getting the hell out of there. Regroup and fight another. Welcome to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. We're back to the time machine, April 1997 for Volume 1 of this month's show. Three volumes for you this month. Number two takes us to WWF, looking at the latest installment in your house. Volume number three takes us to WCW, looking at Spring Stampede, which leaves us with Volume number one. We've been promoted with ECW. I'm being joined by Dale Muir. Dale Grady. Hiya, Bob. Nice to be in the big time. We are indeed. And Chris Lacey. Chris, hello. How do we are headlining? Yes, uh, as, as, as I said before we go on air, technically the second time ECW's headlined this show, uh, but you'd have to go back uh, the better part of three years for before we even split shows into volumes for the the, the first time and only time to date that we, we prioritise ECW over the other two. And there is good reason, because this is April of 1997, and this is finally ECW's first foray into pay-per-view. Show's going to be a bit different to normal. We're going to have a, a more relaxed news segment, even by ECW standards. We're then going to kind of discuss the show or the the lead-up to the show, um, and you know, particularly credit to the Wrestling Observer and Pro Wrestling Torch. We should probably credit them every show, but this show in particular both did extended previews of it and I think both had uh, interview time with Paul Hamas. There's a lot of details to go through about that. Then we'll review the show itself uh, and then we're going to do some kind of post-show review in terms of discussing the context surrounding the reaction to the show and how successful it was and all that kind of thing. So very briefly, I'll rattle through the important headlines for this month. Knowing that ECW hosted Barely Legal, their pay-per-view in front of a sellout crowd of 1,250 people in the ECW arena in Philadelphia. Uh, the ticket prices for the show were such that they absolutely obliterated their 
their their gate record. The approximation is that they did between sixty and seventy thousand dollars on the gate, selling around three or three to four hundred tickets at ringside for a hundred dollars a piece, and the rest at forty dollars a piece. Uh, the buyer for the show. We're still not really sure. The original buyout coming out was about twenty to thirty thousand. Then news the following week, some people were saying fifty or sixty, but generally in in pay per view world, when you get numbers like that, you generally assume they've been kind of overcooked and exaggerated a bit. Um, believe it or not, the 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 most concise person we've got for a buy rate at the moment is Eric Bischoff of all people, who says he's been told the number and it's around forty thousand. Uh, buys. Um, we're going to discuss the, the mechanics around all that later in the show. Anyway, to, in terms of what happened on the show, the, the key points uh, were Taz defeating Sabu cleanly with the Taz mission and then after the match a double turn or a triple turn or a quadruple turn, depending on how you're counting, uh, as Sabu aligned with Rob Van Dam and Bill Alfonso as a heel group going up against the now babyface Taz. Uh, and in the other kind of match of note or pair of matches of note was Terry Funk won the ECW heavyweight title, beating Sandman and Stevie Richards in the semi-main event before defeating Raven in the main event. And the other big story for the month, speaking of Raven, is that Raven, in about two to three months' time, will be off to WCW. He signed a three-year deal worth around, I think it's $225,000 per year. So we'll be discussing that later in the show. So that's the that's the, the, the meat of the news. There's certainly a lot more, not more big headline stuff but a lot of context that we're going to go into so we're going to start really with this this first chunk of the show looking at the 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 bit leading up to the pay-per-view itself we've got we have got tvs this month like normal but uh, this is one of the most irrelevant months of tv you will ever see you've only got access to hardcore tv um but we will we will jam in our usual stuff there is the odd thing of note um so I think we'll just start with a, a look at the preparation itself of the pay-per-view. Um, the admission by Paul Heyman with interviews beforehand that they never really promoted this show. There were plans at one point to do a, a large, significant-scale marketing campaign to promote the show, um, but they essentially just didn't do that. I think under the, I'm under the impression they didn't just because of their lack of penetration or their lack of availability with a lot of pay-per-view carriers. Um, there was the general acceptance that the show was going to be a money loser. Uh, Paul Heyman was quoted uh, in one of the talks to the Observer saying, I don't think we can realistically expect to do any sort of decent number. Show instead was basically a test with the idea that they want to be able to see whether they can put on uh, a show and they want to be able to show pay-per-view providers that they can put on a show is still extreme but is within the bounds of what the pay-per-views want. Um, and also the fact that the pay-per-view, the, uh, another big point was that when we talk about the availability in some markets and not in others, the key point, or one of the key points, was that they had availability in some markets with very, very little ECW exposure. And yet some of their strongest markets, namely the, the metropolitan Philadelphia area, Boston and Long Island that had very little access to the shows. Um, Dan, I'll, I'll bring you in at this point. There's, there, there's other things to discuss before we hit the pay-per-view. Um, but your, your thoughts on, on that kind of side or that angle looking at this pay-per-view? I think it's just very ECW, to be honest. Um, they're not the most organised of companies. They're not the most kind of 
popular outfits, but it's it's just got a very independent feel to it. Whether it's independent film, independent music, independent anything, it's it's just got that kind of little engine that could kind of store it. And I think the if we were kind of turning on turning on the telly during the week before running up to the show and seeing these big glossy, highly produced trails for a a pay-per-view debut coming, I think we would be a bit more worried than just not really seeing anything at all. I think the, I mean, I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but the the limited availability because I think it just shows when you're talking about the the numbers that's coming in for this buy rate, it's hard to look at it at a point scale. There was a lot of talk coming into it on that really need to break a point two, it can break even or it. Can I get the second show? You can't really gauge it in that kind of point scale with the availability that they had because it's obviously going to be a bit diluted in the amount of homes that's got it. But the volume that we're talking about with these numbers that's coming for easy about forty thousand. I mean, that's. I mean, how many shows is ECW running on a a yearly basis to even touch the sides of getting that kind of income? So. It's it's kind of got negatives and positives throughout the full story, but I don't think we would expect anything less VCW the last two and a half, three years. Chris? Well, sort of the, they were saying about breaking even. Um, looking at it, they had... Yes, they had the new ring mat. Yes, they had a sort of little bit of stuff around the entrance and obviously the expenditure of being live and going out live. It's not like they're hiring a bigger building or doing anything sort of set-wise or anything like that that means that they'd have had a bigger, or a much bigger outgoing to to the in the first place. There there are a lot of costs to broadcasting live. One of the ideas about six or seven months ago was the idea that they might take the show and then show it on pay for you a couple of days later. Um, and there are significant costs out of the gate in terms of broadcasting a live show. Uh, I don't have the exact breakdown. Um, and there's also the the flip side that as with any pay-per-view venture, you've got to split your revenues with the pay-per-view providers as well. Um, so when we talk about, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the price was. I think it depends on on the carrier, but I presume it will be something similar to your average WWF or WCW show, which would put it in the range of. 20 to 25 dollars something like that splitting 40,000 of those buyers with you know with, with a pay-per-view provider it gets you some income but not a significant amount and there's a lot of costs that go in and also there's a lot of costs just in in getting ready there's something i'm going to come on to in a minute about the preparation for the show um they were working for months to get this ready and there's the costs incurred for that as well mm. But, yeah, as Del was saying, it was very much a sort of the thing that you'd expect from ECW is very much the DIY punk sort of feel of, you know, we we won't do it the conventional way. Even if you look at this, especially sort of, no, no, we're not going into the show at the moment, but that open to the show with the sort of, there wasn't a video package as such. It was sort of the graphics of this is our first pay-per-view with this very edgy look that is so ECW, so sort of DIY and punk, they could have quite easily done what everyone else does and does a video package, but it wouldn't have been them. So they did keep what is ECW about the product. Yeah. 
we'll uh, we'll come on to more of that when we get onto the show itself. Um, speaking of getting the show ready, just a couple of quotes from from Paul Heyman. Um, just on about preparing for pay-per-view, he said, it's going over every single solitary detail hoping you're not fucking up and knowing in some way, somehow, that you are. And he said that attention to detail had been lost and so many things have been trying to get done. Another thing that came up a lot, certainly the last few weeks, is tension. Um, tension in the ECW locker room, nervousness, you know, perhaps some apprehension surrounding the, the upcoming show. Uh, some guys attempted to leave that to be talked into staying, or, or were talked into staying, on the basis of money uh, that would be coming in from the pay-per-view, although as we kind of said, that you know that's a long-term kind of goal. Um, talks that there was nearly a fight backstage between Shane Douglas and the Sandman, Essentially surrounding Douglas, who was kind of pushing together a live event, got pissed off with an angle involving, I think, Tracy Smothers and somebody else. Um, and then word broke out and Douglas got pissed off that there was a kind of a leaker in the locker room. So he kind of shouted at people and Sandman got involved. And then there was another angle, another show involving Sandman being injured. So Douglas being involved in an angle to write Sandman off of the show. Douglas used Sandman's cane and Sandman was pissed off at that because that's his trademark. Um, so that's going on as well. And it's also said that Rob Van Dyne, apparently this is a shoot, did not want to appear on the show. After being told he wasn't going to be on the card... Rob Van Dam then thought that being offered a spot replacing the injured Chris Candido was a bit of a shot at him and he didn't want to be a fill-in. Obviously, as we'll, we'll come to, he was. Um, but Chris, fair to say that, you know, a, a one, one line I read in one of the two um, newsletters was the idea that you know, some guys just wanted the whole thing to be over. And I think there was, you know, we talk about this being the perfect time for ECW's pay-per-view, but as we kind of alluded to last month, they've almost had a little too long, and this is the kind of thing that can come off the back of that. Mm. Uh, as you said, sort of, I think had the the build-up not been the last sort of eight months or so, that we knew that it was going to be coming, we knew sort of we were waiting just on a date and things like that. I think you know it, it's like if you're waiting for an exam or a wedding day or anything like that, sort of the closer and closer that you get to the big event happening, you're always more stressed. You know, you start dwelling on all the things that can go wrong or could go wrong. Um, so it is, it's just natural that people are going to be on edge, tension levels are going to be higher. And when you put that many personalities and misfits together, they're going to start rubbing each other up the wrong way. Um, and especially sort of if it comes to someone thinking about money or, you know, they don't like their idea or someone thinks they're taking their spot. When it's that sort of level, you know, th- there is only ever going to be the, the first pay-per-view once. So you want to be on that card, you know, you want to be as high in it as possible. And, you know, you also don't want to be the one that's losing the match. So, of course, you can sort of know why that's going to be going on in the back. Um, but then it wouldn't be ECW if there wasn't some form of shenanigans or, you know, rivalries going on backstage, which could all make the House of Cards fall down. Don't. Same as Lacey. It's, it's just a very volatile situation when you've got all these... 
or these combustible elements at the same time. I mean, we know this. We know this company's on a bit of a shoestring budget as it is. You then add in the pressure of having to do the the normal loops, they kind of day in the weekend shows, and kind of try to get yourself geared up for the pay per view, and then the folk at the at the higher end of a card, whether it's kind of the, the people we value, like, look at like uh, Raven in the main event when he knows he's got the WCW deal coming, he'll be wanting to get this kind of stuff out of the road to to try and go on with the next chapter in his career, but then you've got other folk that's going to be looking to get themselves up to that position, and it's, I mean, it's, it's not a coincidence when you're walking in there, a locker room with a new Jack, or a, or a Shane Douglas, or a Sandman, I mean, these, these people are pretty volatile folk, and the least wee bit of, bit of pressure's going to add a lot of stress to, to one person, which then maybe rubs somebody else up the wrong way, and then you've got Paulie trying to kind of keep on top of them. And I mean, it's a lot of combustible elements, and it has a lot of stress. I mean, it's just that stress tends to get magnified when you've got such personalities in a in a company, and it's trying to just get everybody club together. When it's let's be honest, it's one of the the most bloodthirsty industries in the world, so it's it's going to be tricky to try keeping this, the plates all spinning, but. I mean, considering how volatile some of them are, I think they've done pretty well. Yeah, and speaking of kind of incidents, live events, talks are that after the pay-per-view, they're going to start running three shows a weekend. Mm. Uh, I, th- I think Thursday, Friday, Saturday was w- was what they were saying, um, which is interesting, and with the thought that if they can run another show, they, they will enable to make enough money where a lot of the guys that are currently a bit kind of part-time might be able to start making a career out of wrestling if they can work three days a week. There's a flip side of that, the ECW work a brutal style, and there are a lot of guys that will put themselves on the line regardless of what the show is. Um, and you add in another show, and Haven's kind of said, you know, I don't want to add in a third show and then basically dilute my work rate. And he doesn't want to add in a third show and end up with a lot of injured bodies. Um, so there's that. Um, but that'll be interesting to see how, how that develops as well. Um, the final talking point before, the, before we start looking at the show... Uh, it's Terry Funk. This is the Texas Panhandle, and this is where my father is. I come here a lot whenever I need strength. Sometimes I get a twitch in my eye and a dead gum lump in my throat. I'm going to try and not let that happen today. I loved him. We all loved him. And he loved this part of Texas. I think this is a great place for him to be. His gravestone says, Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not here, I did not die. <laughs> he didn't spiritually. If I make it through the three-way dance with Stevie Richards and Sandman, if I make it to Raven and beat him for the ECW World Championship, I have to do it one step at a time. Dad, this one's for you. kind of found interesting reading the observer um and talks about the booking of funk with the idea that can the old man finally do it one more time uh, might actually be damaging funk's perception with ecw's crowds um i'll, re- I'll lift a quote directly from the observer here 
When he started this run, Funk's crowd reaction blew away that for anyone else in the company, and those close to the promotion pointed to Funk being there as the difference scene just barely filling the building and a show that would turn away hundreds. In some cities in recent weeks, Funk's barely got a crowd reaction. By telling people he's over the hill so much, people are starting to believe it. The storyline they were trying to tell of can the old man, the all-time legend, pull off one last legendary performance out of a tired, aching body has also become a reality. Del, this is interesting, and I, I don't inherently disagree with it. And I think some of this comes from this long build in that they've had funk on TV a lot and they've been talking about you know his past and all of that. Um, but I think... That there's a line you can toe when trying to present a, a legendary old timer coming back, but I don't know that they haven't overstepped that once or twice. Um, it's hard to argue. Well, I mean, I'm I'm a big Terry Funk fan. I'm probably second or maybe even third on this panel about being a Terry Funk fan. So I know what you two think, him, but it, it's hard to judge it when you've seen seen somebody for that long. I mean, how many folk watching ECW and we know how smart the crowds are and we know that they know their history and there's probably a good percentage of that that crowd has seen Funk in ECW. They've seen him the kind of brief stints that he's had since since the late eighties when it turned to WCW. We've seen him in Crockett, we've seen him in the NWA, we've seen him as a champion, we've seen him as a brawler in his fifties and then back to his forties, his thirties, his twenties. There's a lot of things that we've seen in Terry Funk, and as good as the story is, it's kind of typical of the the audience reaction in this day and age, where everything's getting a lot more quick and everything's getting a faster turnaround, and kind of the the style even like TV and things that we see these days. It was seen maybe five, ten years ago, going back to the early nineties or into the the late eighties. It's a it's a bit of fast food culture these days and it's it's hard to keep a story running when you've got somebody that's fresh and like it's a terrible comparison but I'm going to go back to a couple of years ago and looking at Lex Luger when you see the kind of rise of him and try to make him a big face and a big story in New York and it just didn't work out but that was the first time we were seeing him when you've seen somebody that's been kind of floating about dirt sheets or floating about TVs or floating about pay-per-views or home videos and it's something you've seen for maybe 10, 15, 20, 30 years, just depending on how old you are. It gets that bit harder to kind of sell it. So, I mean, I think they, they did well, and I'm still totally behind the the decisions with regards to booking, but I spoke earlier on about spinning plates. It's it's even harder spinning a plate that you've been that you've been looking at for kind of 20, 30 years. So I think they did as well as they could, but it is a very, very tricky act to live up to. Chris? My one issue I have with Funk is um, obviously watching stuff from the late 80s of WCW. He retired in 87 and then again and had his last match in 89. You know, Forever. Yeah, Forever. that's the thing. He's done. He's already done these last ever matches and I'm retiring. So... It's hard. Uh, well, to... I should be clear. He's not retired on this show, and he won the title. Oh, no, no, I'm not saying that he has. But the thing is, if you've seen him sort of come and go, come and go, come and go, um, do you still have the same thing for him if they're trying to build him up? Because this whole sort of one last go around the bush to try and get the belt. 
is very similar to the angles and the stories they were going in when they were doing the retirement angles. You know, it's that one last hurrah for him. So it, it's if you've been a funk fan, as Dale said, for the last sort of you know, 20, 30 years, you've seen this play out where he has his quote-unquote last hurrahs. You know, does that hurt that they're basically sort of going back to the well with stuff that has been done with him before? I mean, 1989 was eight years ago. I mean, I, I, you know, I think I talk about presentation. My my focal point, I would argue, is more on what we've seen of Funk in the ring than what we've seen of him outside of it in this last few months. His promos have been as good as they ever were. Um, the stuff in Raven's been pretty strong. But you kind of go back to that main event in February where you had Funk in that tag match and Funk just takes a regulation bump and they pretend like he's, you know, losing his mind. I, You know, I I don't know that's the greatest way to present a guy you're going to give your title to. Um, mm. And it's, you know, it's interesting to, to have that discussion and be able to back it up with, you know, anecdotal but still serious evidence from people in buildings that, you know, Funk's, Funk's bit away. I mean, I think some of that's just going to be, you know, ECW does loops, but they don't do that much touring, as in they'll they'll go back to the same kind of towns quite frequently. So if Funk's been on on the tours for two or three months, maybe when Funk goes back the second time, it's not the same lure. Maybe people realise how old he is. But I don't know that it helped, but equally, you know, we're going to talk about a show, and we're going to talk about a, a hardcore fan base buying a pay-per-view, and a, 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 an even more hardcore fan base going to the show. I don't think any of those guys cared. I think that's probably the the best way to place to leave it. So, Chris, we've got a week's worth of TV before the, the uh, before we go into the pay per view. Uh, take us through it. So, uh, week one on the eighth uh, starts with a full review of and sort of retrospective look at the Pitbulls and Shane Douglas saga. Um, after that, they run through the full card for the pay-per-view. We then get some fan cam footage from a recent show, uh, RVD vs. Pitbull 2. Don't really see much of the match, but what we do see is that RVD does a flip sent on over the ropes and lands on Pitbull 1's neck. Obviously, you know, with his recent issues, with his broken neck, they do sort of play up that he's really hurt. Um, there's some promos from, the, from Shane Douglas and the Dudleys. And then again with some fan cam footage of the Dudleys versus the Gangsters versus the Eliminators. In usual fan cam, it is very much jump cuts. Here are the potted highlights. Cronus hits his backflip elbow over the top rope. Uh, Saturn hits some amazing chair shots and double stereo moonsaults. The Eliminators hit some great kick combos, and then the gangsters do what the gangsters always do, weapons in tow, and out comes the brawl. Bubba gets hit with some double kicks whilst his head is in a bin. New Jack, in his new idea of let's jump off stuff, dives from the balcony through Devon through a table. Um, Think the Manhattan Centre, that sort of a balcony around the ring, he dives off one of those, just literally jumps and through Devon. 
Bubba hits the Bubba Cutter to eliminate Mustafa, as is usual freeway rules. Saturn hits a pitch-perfect elbow drop. Sign Guy Dudley tries to powder the ref, while the Eliminators hit total elimination with no ref. Sign Guy gets kicked square in the face. Devon rolls up Saturn for the win. To even the odds, the Eliminators destroy Sign Guy with total elimination. After this, we get an Eliminators promo and a Sabu and Taz hype video with a Sabu or a Taz promo to end. Chris, do you want to drag forward the bits from show number two that show the that show the pre-show notes, if you've got any of those? Uh, so, yeah, um, bits of show two, we get uh, lots of bits of the Terry Funk speech from the banquet from the day before Barely Legal. Um, we get from the pre-show... A, the Shylock package between Shane and Pitbull is shown again, but this one has more Rue, Rick Rude promo in. And that's about it, really. Um, there's little bits of talking um, from Paulie about how excited he was going into the Sabu and Taz match. And again, we get a full re-showing of that bit pipe package yeah um, I just thought it was interesting because they, they, they kind of showed the pre the, uh, the bulk of the pre-show that aired before the pay-per-view and interesting to see that the, the two matches they focused on in that video were Douglas against Pitbull and the Eliminators against the Dudleys I don't know what that says or perhaps it was just a part of the pre-show that we saw mm. um, but there is that anyway on to the pay-per-view Del kick us off with the results yeah first up Bobby the tag team title match was Eliminators Cronus and Saturn they were going up against the Dudley brothers, Bobby Ray and Devon. Uh, Bobby Ray and Devon going in as champions, but the Eliminators won, and are now the new tag team champions. Next up was Rob Van Dam against Lance Storm. As we said in the news, it was originally Chris Candido and Lance Storm. But Van Dam came in as a late sub and beat Lance Storm. Next up with the, the six-man tag, it was the great Suzuki, Granamada, and Masato Yakushiji. Um, Yakushiji was in as a late sub for Kran Nanawa. They beat the, the Blue World Order, the Japan branch, and that was Takamichi and Oko, um, Terry Boy and Dick Togo for Kran Tai Deluxe in Japan. We had Shane Douglas retaining his TV title against Pitbull number two. Taz beating Sabu, and then the semi-main leading into the main event, it was the three-way dance elimination, that was Terry Funk, um, he won that one against the Sandman and Stevie Richards. Stevie getting eliminated first, then the Sandman. Funk wins to go on to face Raven for the title, and Terry Funk wins and is now the new ECW World Champion. Chris, what do you think of the show? It was pretty much all the elements of ECW that we've come to love and enjoy, just slightly toned down. Um, we had the violence, but it wasn't what we would normally get. We had the really good wrestling, but it it did seem that something was missing. There was a sort of an edge that was missing, I think, to please the pay-per-view companies. No. It's possibly wall-to-wall the most consistent 
ECW show I've seen. Um, the biggest kind of detractors you usually get for an ECW when you see it on tape, at least, is there's always a couple of fights at the start that just kind of don't feel as if they should really be there. You're going to get like a, a Lewis Bacoli coming out. You're going to maybe get a Mikey match. It used to be maybe a year, 18 months ago, it was just m one coming out when the fans started to shit on it. With a big show, you kind of got away from that with them having the couple of dark matches to start with it, almost went straight into it. And they started it off pretty quick. There was a couple of lulls, I'm not going to kind of lie, it was far from perfect. But overall, probably the most consistent show I've seen them do, and I've seen a fair few of them. I was not a fan of this. Um, you know, there were a lot of positives, and I think objectively I can say this was a success from the ECW point of view, and we'll come on to that later. Um, but reviewing a show front to back, as we would review any other show, removing some of the context surrounding it, um, I thought the the match quality overall was pretty poor. Um, I thought the some of the decision making regarding the booking was pretty poor. Um, and yeah, it you know I've seen significantly better ECW shows, and not. Not in the way that Chris would talk about in the sense that significantly quite unquote more extreme. Um, I just did better. Um, and you look at how this show was put together. Um, you know, I think it entertained a lot of ECW fans. I'm not trying to be horrid on the show. I just didn't think it was particularly good. And there were two or three quite significant moments in this show. And I think they got them wrong. Um, but that being said, as I say, pulses from this show where it was a success. Uh, we speak about news from the show. Talks were that apparently under a minute after the show went off the air, the generator powering the broadcast equipment blew up. Um, so the show would have gone off the air whether they'd want it to or not. So there was that. But the show from an execution standpoint was pretty good. They had some mic problems early on. They had some other things as well. Um, I thought visually the ECW arena looked spectacular. They'd given it a clean. They'd introduced a significantly better lighting system. They had a, a significantly better kind of lighting system around the entranceway as well. And they had a new map with, with ECW wrestling logo on it as well. Um, so there's there's a lot of positives to be taken. But if, if I review this as a show, as we review any other show, starts to fall apart and we'll, we'll get to that as we cover this show we start with joe styles in the ring as i said earlier they significantly upgraded lighting for this show along with the ring map big upgrade that stars does usually in try in front of a hot crowd and here come the dudleys and gertner we're having some audio issues as the promos are coming to the arena arena speakers devon tells fans to shut the hell up an interesting note. You usually tell them to shut the fuck up. One of the differences are coming on pay-per-view. He tells us it's time to testify. And we get the normal intro. Joel Gertner does the introduction for the Dudleys. The Eliminators come out to what I'll call a nice reaction. Are we up and up with the Dudley boys, Bubba Ray and Devon with Joel Gertner and Sign Guy versus the Eliminators, Saturn and Cronus for the ECW tag titles. The Dudleys clear the ring and Sign Guy gets a total elimination. Dudley storm back into the ring and take advantage. Devon hits a slot drop and Bubba hits a big power bomb on Cronus. Bubba picks up Cronus for a suplex and Devon comes off of the top with a crossbody for a nice near fall. Saturn goes for a moonsault, lands on his feet and then hits a double drop kick. The Eliminators are on top with a pair of slams. They both go to the top and hit twister splashes. Those look real nice. 
Perry Sutton hits a big moonsault onto the floor. Cronus hits a handspring moonsault over the top. Real nice. Back in the ring, Cronus hits a slam. Sutton drops an elbow from the top rope. The Eliminators take Devon to his knees and hit a simultaneous spin kick. That looks really nice. Cronus goes to the top, hits a lovely 450 splash. That looks really good. They put Bubba on his knees and hit a front and back kick. They then hit the total elimination on Bubba. One, two, three. Big pop. New champs. Here's Joel Gertner. Fans champ, fuck him up, fuck him up. Gertner says the Dudleys won the stud muffin scoring system. <laughs> I've got a few ideas of where this might be going. The Eliminator stand by, then hit total elimination, and that will do that. I will be rating this show no. on the stud muffin score card. Um, <laughs> sorry, Joel, but I will be. I really wish I'd have put the suit jacket on and like the wee bow tie and just no shirt, just in honour of the man. But um, I'm not the I'm never shy away from never been the biggest kind of fan of tag team wrestling. I really love this. Um, I I don't know how many times I've listened to you in the last couple of months, but talking about get the get the Eliminators on national telly, whether it's WWF, they can actually give them a tag team or even if they were going into WCW, I can, I've finally started seeing what you're talking about now. They were so impressive in this. The, the amount of kind of double team manoeuvres they were doing were brilliant. Cronus, who must be a good 260, 70-pound, then a 450 for the top rope. Um, one of the most, kind of, I mean, I don't read a lot of the the talks and the observer at the best of times, but I have been pretty excited about this. And one of the big things they were talking about getting into this was the they kind of focus on Joey Styles talking live instead of doing it post production. I thought he was really decent in this, kind of building up the two teams. And I just thought this was a really, really good match. I mean, there was a couple of, a couple of kind of burn tag spots in it for, that kind of got a bit much early on. You could almost feel the nerves of the, the four of them in there starting this half. But as an opener, this is as good as anything I've seen this year, I would say. Chris? Um, I really, really liked it, but I have a major issue with which I'll bring up at the end. Um, the Eliminators brought their working boots with them because they were not fucking about. They, you know, they had the couple of double team moves done to them by the Dudleys to start with, and then they brought their A game with, you know, the as, as it was called the space flying Chronostrop, the handspring uh, plancher. You had. Sabu doing, or Saturn even doing Sabu-esque springboard double uh, moonsaults, Cronus doing the 450, you know, they they were not fucking about. My only issue with this, because it was a bit squashy with the fact of how much the Eliminators were on top, does it hurt the Dudleys that they got destroyed like this? Yeah. Um, See, I don't no. think so purely for the basis that they got the bit at the start, they got the bit in at the end. It was very one-sided, but I think the two of them come off well. I mean, this was kind of the point. I mean, yeah, let, let, let's echo what you two have said. As, a, as an outing for the Eliminators, they look really, really good. And this was just a squash match. I mean, let's be honest, this was a... You know, if you didn't know anything about this and you were, you know, you put this in the Manhattan Centre three years ago in a Raw or Superstars, this would have been a very, very memorable, very, very athletic squash match. That was all it was. 
And one of the things I praised them for last month was just about how, um, you know, just about how they they presented the Dudleys and like shocked people into believing that they were relevant and believable as tag team title holders. And it's not so they reversed it with this, but it was, you know, they undid a lot of it, I thought. Um, but, you know, I, in the grand scheme of things, like a lot of things on this show, a lot of observations, I'm not inherently sure it matters. It's the crowd. It's an audience that will overlook things like this to an extent on a show that they'll forget something like this. You get to the end of the night, I don't know how much you're remembering about this opening match. Um, that all being said, though, the Illuminates are so fucking good. Apparently, we speak about this, apparently they have signed um, new ECW contracts through up until the next pay-per-view. That's the another interesting bit of news. Next pay-per-view will be in August. Um, so they're going to be around for that, it seems. Um, but yeah, they're the best tag team in North America, and this was a, a very, a very one-sided showing of it. But another illustration of why that's uh, why that's the case. Joe Stars tells us Chris Candido is out for six weeks. We cannot compete. He's in the ring with a microphone, his arm in a sling. Candido chronicles his role on the first ECW show at the ECW Arena. The promo doesn't really go anywhere, and out comes Lance Storm. Next up, it's Lance Storm versus Rob Van Dam. We got a hot, even start. Storm getting some traction with a clothesline. Van Dam gets a big run up and hits a somersault plancher to Storm on the outside. Van Dam hits a leg drop from the top for a two. Storm goes for a flying crossbody over the top but hits the floor as Van Dam moves. Van Dam hits a moonsault off the guardrail. Van Dam throws Storm into the corner, then as he bounces off, he just launches a chair at his face. That's really nice. Van Damme sits Storm in the corner, charges out with a chair and hits a drop kick, kicking the chair into Storm's face. Van Damme hits a double underhook flapjack, then goes to the top, hits a huge frog splash, delays a bit, and Storm kicks out. Van Damme misses a splash in the corner. Storm basically then just throws Van Damme onto a chair mid-ring. Storm comes off of the top with a crossbody for a two. Van Damme pulls Storm under the bottom rope inside the ring and then hits a slingshot and guillotine leg drop. Van Dam misses a spin kick. Storm hits him in the head with a chair and hits a lovely Tiger Bomb flat onto it. Van Dam gets up, unfolds the chair. Storm comes off to the top with a leg drop and levels him into it. Van Dam hits a low blow, then props him on top to the top rope before attempting to hit a springboard back elbow that he slits and he just about connects. The crowd responds with chants of "You fucked up." Storm hits a soft chair, a soft chair shot to the head that gets loud boos, another soft one, and not more boos. Van Damme hits the Van Daminator and a standing moonsault, and that'll do that. Van Damme gets the mic. He's not here to get anyone's respect. Van Damme is pissed that he was subbing for an injury. Van Damme says by winning, he's worth more money here and elsewhere. The fans chant, get the fuck out. Chris. This was an awesome sort of spotty wrestling match which you you see quite often ECW and I think this show had to have one and needed one to show anyone that may not be coming over knowing exactly what ECW is all about that it isn't just tables barbed wire and violence um you know there's some good chain wrestling bits in there um this Lance Storm seems to have some really, really good fundamentals on how to sort of work around the ring, though that rat tail has to go. <laughs> um, obviously, it still involved chairs, you know. It, it shows that they're hard, even when they have proper wrestling, there is the hardcore element. And 
Van Damme's athleticism, I, I don't think anyone in the Fed or in the WCW could match him athletically for the stuff that he can do. Del? I never seen much of the thrill seekers and Smoky Mountain, but Lance Storm, Lacey's point does look really, really solid, man. Um, some of the stuff that he was pulling off in this, like the roll through into the Boston Crab, and he just looks like a really, really good wrestler. And you need somebody like that in this company, as Lacey says as well. And when you're matching them up with a, with a Van Dam, the only thing that that worried me early on in this. Thankfully, it didn't last too long. It's when they took the two to the outside because this is like, if you're talking about one match on a card that they don't need to go to the outside and do the ECW thing, it was this. But um, kind of similar to the first one, it really just built up the one side for me. I thought Van Damme, I mean, just seeing him coming down an aisle he looks like a star. And when he can deliver like that in the ring, he's he just, you could, you could, Put a checkbook on that boy, and you just wouldn't you wouldn't worry about any of them bouncing. Um, the two of them I really like because I've not seen much of Landstorm, but what I did see, I really really liked. Two for two for me. I just thought this was really good. Yeah, good match. Um, you know the, the the mechanics of a Chris Candido Landstorm uh, match were been very different to this one, um, and they got the chair involved really really early. Um, but yeah, like a. Uh, another kind of, you know, high-quality squash, you'd say, in a way. I mean, still got a bit more in. He kind of rallied a little bit. This is all about Van Damme getting his stuff in. And I think, you know, to a point like the Eliminators, but this one made more sense. There's a, there's a lot less investment in Storm at this point. Um, and given what's happening with Van Damme, there's a lot more, you know, that we'll see later in the show. There's a lot more in- incentives to kind of get Van Damme over. Some clunky stuff. You know, when if you're going to wrestle the kind of style Van Damme does, you are going to make mistakes, and the crowd seem to be quite happy to let him know it more than uh, more than anyone else. Um, and if, as Dave Meltzer says, if, if you're Lance Storm, either swing a chair hard or don't swing it at all. <laughs> um, those chair shots were painfully soft. I mean, not that I want to encourage, you know, significantly hard chair shots to the head, and we are talking about, you know. I think it's Balls Mahoney at the moment, but the gimmick with Balls Mahoney is going to be that he's going to try and earn Samar's respect by taking increasingly hard chair shots to the head, which is fun to read. Um, but yeah, a, a, a decent outing. Uh, Van Damme looked good. Um, and dare I say, I, said, I think, you know, we talk about Van Damme being a sub for Candido. I, I suspect that kind of improved things to a point. Uh, but yeah, to a point, two for two. Uh, I think there were, you know, I'd argue that the first match was better, even though I had more qualms with it. Um, but this was fine. You know, they a lot of this show certainly. You know, we're going to come on the next match as well. This was really a show of two halves. There was a kind of show of let's just have good, decisive matches, and then we'll get to our matches that quote unquote matter down the stretch. We were next to the BWO for BWO Japan, Takamichi Noku, Terry Boy and Dick Togo versus Great Sasuke, Gran Hamada and Masoto Yakashiji. ECW fans give them the traditional Japanese streamer entrance, which looked quite nice. We start off with Hamada and Michinoku. Fast action with a snapmare, a power slam snapmare combo. Yakashiji comes off the top and hits a standing leg drop for a two. Sasuke tags in and hits a series of kicks. Michinoku blocks a suplex and tags in Terry Boy. Dick Togo hits a running senton and the BWO are in control. 
Minchinoku hits the Boston Crab, Terry Boyer, Camel Clutch, and Togo running kick on Sasuke. Apparently, Sasuke wrestled in the Tokyo Dome last night. Bloody hell. Terry Boy hits a big suplex on Yakashiji for a two. Yakashiji hits a hurricane run and the Tilton Whirl arm drag that looked really nice. Christ, the pace of this match. We get Terry Boy and Hamada exchanging slaps. Terry Boy goes for a clothesline for, uh, for Hamada, but who catches it into an arm bar? Then again on Michinoku. There's an exchange of something that ends with Sasuke hitting a crossbody on Terry Boy. Yakashiji goes for a baseball slide on Terry Boy, but instead uses momentum to hit a Hurricane Rana on the outside. Hamada hits the Hurricane Rana on Togo. Michinoku manages to wriggle out of a high angle single leg crab from Sasuke. Togo and Terry Boy hold up Sasuke by his feet, then Michinoku hits a drop kick, then puts Sasuke in a double arm bar, and Michinoku poses on his back. Terry Boy goes for the Terry Funk spinning toe hole. That doesn't work, but he hits a savage looking spike DDT on the run. Michinoku hits a brain buster for a two. That looked really nice. I've got okay in my notes as Terry, Bu- Terry Boy catapults Jack CG into a lariat from Togo. Then Michinoku comes off with the top for a near fall. We get a double team spike pile driver onto Hamada. We then get a triple team powerbomb onto Yakashiji for a two. The BWO fucks something up. There he sets seemingly for another triple powerbomb, but Sasuke reverses it for a near fall. Sasuke kicks Togo to the outside and hits a springboard moonsault onto the guardrail. Michinoku hits a running plancher to the outside onto Hamada. We're left with Yakashiji and Terry Boy. Yakashiji hits the moonsault for a two. In all caps, I've got slow down, lads. Terry Boy hits the DDT, then a no-arm powerbomb for a two. Togo hits a Hamada for a two. Hamada hits a DDT onto Togo for a two. Togo goes to the top but gets cut off. Hamada hits a Hurricane Rana from the top. Yakashiji hits a Hurricane Rana off of the top onto Togo, then hits a suicide dive to the outside. Sasuke hits a big kick. Michinoku fires back the lovely belly-to-belly and a big drop kick from the top for a two. Michinoku drive for a two. Sasuke hits a drop kick as Michinoku comes off of the top. Slow down. Sasuke hits a double unhook German suplex with a bridge for a, uh, for a two. For a two With a bridge, and that will do that. I did yeah. say I was quite excited about seeing Kai and Ty Deluxe on my telly, weren't I? Um, I'm kind of torn in this, because being... I've been so excited about this for like the last two years, this show actually happening. I thought it was going to happen, then we got it confirmed kind of six, eight months ago, it's actually happening. A lot of people are saying this is by far and away the best match of the night, which I'm not entirely convinced it is, but it was really, really good. Um, I've been looking forward to seeing, well, BW Japan, I suppose they're calling them in ECW. I thought some of the stuff that they were pulling off was ridiculously good. Like, how often do you see it these days? People actually taking the time to do double team manoeuvres in a tag team, never mind when it's a trio that's in there. The last kind of really great tag team they actually you knew they were sitting down and learning this shit was Marty Jannetty and Shawn Michaels and out of the last five six years you just don't really see it and then when you get three of them coming in and every one of them's got something different was just brilliant I, I mean I've always I would probably say Togo was my favourite out of the three but some of the stuff that we tack I was doing was I mean that brain buster in the middle looked fucking deadly it just, like, I've never seen a brain buster like that since it was, like, Tully Blanchard or something, like, ten years ago. And, um, 
the only the only kind of thing that really took away for me was there was a lot of two counts. I mean, I don't know how many times you had to say there for a two in your match notes, but there was a hell of a lot of kickouts, and it's. I, I don't know whether if they maybe shaved a couple of them out or maybe shaved a couple of minutes out of the match. It just kind of got a bit much for me. But as a as a match between kind of two sets of three, that no being a great tag team fan, I, I was a bit kind of a bit sceptical coming into it as much as I like Kai Tai Deluxe. I wasn't really sure about that. I mean, I didn't even know Grand Hamada was still going. These days, and then you've got Yakushiji coming in as a late sub, but it, it really, really impressed me. Some of the, some of the kind of teaming up in this was just ridiculously good. I must have, I really, really liked that. Chris, see again, it's pretty much like uh, the match from last month on TV, where it's non-stop spots, um, and I'm going to have the same issues I had back then. I think it is just an ingrained Japanese thing that when you have a multi-man match, it's not really storytelling as such. It is you get your shit in. Um, I loved seeing the streamers because it is, you know, a very Japanese thing and it's good to see that that sort of level of respect to a tradition was brought over with with that. Um as Del was saying, Tacker and Terry Boy were immense in this. I only have one issue, is for your first pay-per-view, should you not be showing your guys and not guys from another company? You know, when you've only really got six matches on this card. But ECW's always been a promotion of imports, right? Yeah, and I'm not saying that, you know not to have imports and things, but normally you would put imports in with your own guys. Well, I don't know. Are any, I mean, are any of these six going to be on normal ECW TV anytime soon? If, or, you, if you don't mind, Bob, I'm going to take this, because I was ready for you two, and I'm going to argue ever. On this. this is going to be like sold out for an actual decent quality show. I think... It's only my opinion, but I think the first two, when it's all ECW guys, they built up the tag team that they wanted to put in the short Wendy. It was the Eliminators, they'd done a good job at Second match, they built up Rob Van Dam, they wanted to put him in the short Wendy. They did a good job at This one, I think it was more a case of they've got these six guys, just fucking go out there, bring the barn down, and just make a show it. And I thought they did, because the first two were more kind of one-sided affairs. This one was just a match. I thought they actually did really well with just saying, listen, this is the kind of shit that's out here in the world. The Nationals are only going to show you how good this is. They'll put a wee novelty AAA match in here and there. The other one will copy it a couple of months later and it'll be even more than vanilla. But this is what you get with this company. And if you watch our show, this is the shit that you're going to get because we've got a finger on the pulse of what's cool in professional wrestling worldwide, not just in one country. So I thought they actually did pretty good. Go on, Chris. I, I'm not entirely sure Dell answered the question or the point Chris was making. But <laughs> no, no um, to the see, shock of I, I, I get what you're saying there on one bit that, you know, he's showing the ECW aren't just, you know, behind the trend. They're, they're f- with the, the trends. But again. Well, well, the idea is to show they're ahead of it, right? Yeah. But 
again, normally they would put the imports in either with someone that is one of their own or at least someone that's on a deal that's going to be about for a while. Yeah. I mean, this is the point, right? This is the, the, the bit I was trying to wait for. Well, they, to kind of hide uh, thing, a question nobody asked. Um, but the, when you think of imports, I think of Malenko and Guerrero. And okay, those guys were around for a while, but they wrestled each other a lot more than they wrestled anyone else. And those two pissed off, and they brought in the Luchas from Mexico. Rey Mysterio didn't really involve himself with anyone else. There was that bizarre tag match alongside 911 at, at the opening of a show about a, about a year ago. It was a bit weird. But when I, when I think of imports in ECW, I generally think of imports wrestling imports, certainly to a lot higher degree than they wrestle ECW home guys. It's not like Benoit ever faced Shane Douglas. It's not like they ever did Guerrero against Mikey Whitwreck for the ECW title. You know, they they bring in guys and generally like this is the you know, when we talk about those those, those really good ECW shows of two years ago, often it was propped up in the middle by two guys that you couldn't guarantee were gonna be around. Um in that sense I think this was a typical ECW. Fair. No, no, um, you sort of have a good point, obviously, especially more with the Luchas than with sort of Benoit and sort of Eddie, because Benoit and Eddie, they did sort of go against other people. Obviously, Benoit was in that uh, the original incarnation of the Triple Threat because it was him, Dean, and Shane all together. Well, that lasted about five minutes. I mean, that, that, that disbanded as soon as it started, or pretty close. I mean, the, the bigger point of Benoit would be that Benoit's first major program in ECW was with Sabu at the end of 94. So there is that. But I, I don't know that it's, it's out of character for ECW to have a, a match in the middle between guys that otherwise don't interact with anyone else. That's happened often enough, I would say. Hmm. Yeah. Also, the match, Chris, I know we, I know we kind of touched on it, but you, you kind of drifted off. Oh, yeah. Um, again, really, really good sort of high-quality match. Um, and as as Del was saying, you know, you're not seeing this anywhere else on US soil. So, you know, I will get my Japanese hit in, in where I can. But, you know, it was just my sort of thing about it being the first ECW pay-per-view. You would have thought that they'd have more, wanted more of their guys than just relying on imports. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think the point you two haven't touched on, I suspect they put this match on the, on the card just to make sure there was a good match on the card. Um, that would be my assumption. The one thing we've always been able to say about ECW's quote-unquote regulars, and I know guys like Benoit have been around frequently, but I think the the perception of regulars is guys that wrestle for ECW more than they wrestle for anyone else, I would argue. And Benoit was never that. Benoit always had Japan. Japan was always paying his bills. You've got guys that do both. Sabu wrestles Japan, and Japan is probably paying him more than ECW is. But Sabu's around most shows. Van Damme's quite similar, and there are others. Um, but the one thing you've always been asked today is, say about ECW's core roster is that the batting average of that group is not that high in terms of work rate. And we're going to see some of that later on in this show. And so I think there was a thought of a few th- different things. One, that as we kind of say, ECW always does want to be ahead of the curve. And this is like the, the latest bit they're getting ahead of. 
you know, we, we've seen the, the best of American and North American wrestling. We've seen the best of Lucha. Now we'll see the, the best of Japan that they can get hold of. Um, in terms of the match, uh, in some regards, this was phenomenal. Like, in some regards, you can't help but watch and just go, fucking hell. Like, I, th- there were a lot of praise for Hamada. I thought Yakashiji was the star of the show. Some of the shit he was doing, start of the match, certainly. Some of the shit he was doing was incredible. Um, but from someone that doesn't really like this kind of style, and you can see it seeping through every now and then in my notes, you know, it's it's quite a, I don't call it flat, but it's quite a sterile style in that, you know, I can go and watch the circus if I want to see acrobatics. Wrestling, to me, is a bit more than what this was. To me, it's a bit more than let's see how much shit we can get in 15 minutes. Let's see how little selling we can do. And one thing that's never made sense in this kind of match is that get your shit in. But the longer the match goes on, the faster the action gets, which makes no sense. Um, And also just the fact that, you know, if you're doing all this impressive shit and the guy gets straight back up, it doesn't look that impressive anymore. It's just stuff. Um, but yeah, like I had those problems, but I had those problems with this kind of style. I'm never going to be able to watch this kind of match. I really love it. Like I'd have to, I'd have to rewrite the, you know, the blueprint of Japanese wrestling. You know, give, give me a week and I'll do it. But you know, like I, I can't, you know, I, I have to accept some limitations of what I'm seeing. Dale, throw any thoughts on any of the above? It's a fair point with the, the false sale. I mean, it goes back to the, what we were talking there a couple of years ago when Ming, we used to talk about the the tumbleweed for Scorpio when it's like, well, when that misses, it kind of takes away from the fact that he'd done it in the first place. If you're probably dead and it doesn't want a match, then what's the point of doing it in the first place? But um, taking, that, taking that aside, it's just it, it was just nice to see this coming in as a as you said, I mean, they've never wanted to bring it in and put a good, a good match on the show. This kind of came in as a, as a unit where it was like one thing. You had the streamers at the start, you had the, the ref that had obviously came out in the, the plane for, for Mitch and Oku Pro and it was, this kind of seemed to just be something a bit different to anything else, not just in America, but just anything else on this show. But, um, Dare I say, I mean, I've been very positive about this and I'm going to have probably a bit of a fight in my hands trying to kind of argue the positives for what we should say is the second half of the show coming up. But um, dare I say, I think we would have a, a very different outlook on a review overall if it wasn't for this kind of 15, 20 minutes, I'd say. Richard cuts a long promo, says he's going to leave with the respect regardless of the result. Shane Douglas comes out with Francine, who isn't wearing very much at all. They're flanked by security and biker helmets. Douglas cuts the promo and pats himself on the back for calling out pussies from other organisations. And next up, it's Shane Douglas versus Pitbull number two. We go out hard quickly. Pitbull hits a spin wheel kick. For what it's worth, three guys who can't wear motorcycle helmets are still on the outside. Five quid, says one of them, is Rick Rude. Pitbull goes for a next submission. Remember how much heat this had in October? Yeah, not so much. Another long leg submission. Pitbull hits a reverse atomic drop and Gary Wolf is sitting in the front row. Pitbull sets for a powerbomb at Douglas' gate to the Hurricane Rana of sorts. Doesn't look quite as good compared to the standard move in the previous match. 
Pitbull goes for a power bomb, but Douglas flips over the top to the outside. Fast chance, she's got herpes. Douglas hits Strocky. Douglas hits a stalling suplex. He comes out of the corner going for a crossbody. Pitbull catches him, but they seem to fuck the spot up. They reset, and Douglas gets bumbled over the top and through the ringside table. They fall to the outside. Douglas falls into the guardrail, and Gary Wills jumps the guardrail and goes after Douglas for the riot squad leading him away. Pitbull grabs a bit of guardrail and throws it in the wing. In the wing? In the ring. Fans chat, we want blood. There is now just one member of the riot squad left. Douglas goes to crotch Pitbull on the guardrail, but it falls over before he can do it. Douglas drops the guardrail over the top onto Pitbull. He crotches him on the guardrail on the outside, then hits him with a chair. Douglas hits a slam, then goes to the top. He gets caught. Pitbull puts him back up. Douglas shoves him off, then comes off again and gets hit by a drop kick. Pitbull hits a power slam for a two. Francine gives Douglas something. He hits Pitbull in the head with it to no reaction at all. Douglas breaks a bit of table off and hits Pitbull's head with it. It gets a better reaction. Douglas hits him with a chair. The crowd are flat. Douglas hits Pitbull with a title belt twice then goes for a chain in his boot, apparently. Pitbull hits a pump handle slam for a two. He gets the chain, hits Douglas, hits the on-rushing Candido and nearly gets pinned after Douglas rolls him up after distraction from Francine. Douglas hits a belly-to-belly suplex for the clean win. Rick Rude comes out uh, over the arena mic or arena speakers. He says he'll take the mask off if he gives up the girl. He comes out and he's even wearing the ravishing robe. Rude kisses Francine. Douglas nails him with a title belt and then goes to remove the mask. The biker steps into the ring, takes off his helmet and he's Rick Rude. Douglas removes the mask of the guy who's just walked out to find out it's Brian Lee. Lee chokeslams Douglas to a big pop. Boy, Rick Rude has shrunk in the last couple of years. Chris? Um, for a level of blood feud that this is meant to be, why was there such long rest holds in it? Um, because it, it was the didn't, neck. That was the idea. It, it didn't really sort of get me in that sort of thing of this is meant to be these two people that want to absolutely kill each other. Um, if I think, sort of, you think back to last year's Mania and you think of the Piper and Gold, uh, Gold Dust, that level of, you know, they, they, they weren't fucking about, they were going, they were swinging at each other. Yes, you had all the shenanigans with the OJ footage, but the bit in the, in the back lot at the beginning they're going at it. They're they're really sort of just swinging at each other. I think this match really could have dealt or needed that sort of brawl side to it more than what we got. Um, and again, we've had this finish before where Shane hits him with all the things, the chair, belt, the ring bell, bits of a table, his chain and Pitbull nose cells being hit with a weapon it's not something we haven't seen before and again last time these two had a match it does all that hits him with one belly to belly and wins (laughs) for how great this feud has been built up the execution really didn't live up to it no. Oh man, I'm going to start my argument, aren't I? Right. 
I'm going to be positive. I don't care who hates me for it. I'm going to be positive about it, right? We've spoke earlier on about whether it's the Japanese kind of six man or whether it was the the Rob Van Dam. The, the, basically, every match we've seen so far, we've been talking about there wasn't enough story, right? This one had the story going in, and it's easy to say, right, this should be just an utter brawl, and this should just be a fight. There's too much wrestling in this. For me, this might just be me being like Mr. ECW and I just don't want to kind of look anything against it and I'm maybe just excited about the pay-per-view. I don't know what it is, but I'm going with it. I think this wasn't about the fight for the Pitbull. This, I mean, Shane Douglas broke Pitbull one's neck, right? That's what took him out. That's what started this full hanging. It's been going on for months. To me... The way that I looked at the story getting tell in this is this was about Pitbull 2 breaking Shane Douglas, but it wasn't about breaking him in the neck because that, that doesn't hurt somebody like Shane Douglas. You can't just hurt somebody like that with breaking a bone. This was about breaking Shane Douglas's spirit for me, right? He goes in there and he actually tries to mark wrestle and he actually gets done and dirty with him and he tries to beat him at his own game. That's the story that's getting told here. Right. I don't think there's been enough stories getting told in these matches so far I'll be honest about it but I've enjoyed them for the wrestling if you look at this for the wrestling it was pretty shit, it's probably by far and away the worst match on the card but it still doesn't mean that I'm going to narrow it down to just saying it was awful I just think they tried to tell a story that maybe the crowd wasn't quite expecting or willing to get on board with Really random facts, you'll like this, Bob, you like my stories that just take 10 minutes to tell a 30-second parable. I ate a 40-ounce steak once, right? I'm fat, that's what I do. But if you look at this in a bigger picture, it's like the actual show itself. If you eat a 40-ounce steak, man, if you just eat steak and then steak and then steak, like we've had with the matches so far, that has been pretty good and pretty athletic. You need a chip here and there. You need an onion ring just to break it up, right? This was the point in the show for they don't have a live crowd. They're not taking it for home video. They can't just go to an intermission and sell some t-shirts and get somebody out there, get come on at their striptease. They needed something to slow this show down. And I don't think anybody will argue with me that this definitely slowed the show down. Even the bit at the end, it just made sense. It was going to be the bad guy that wins because all his pals run in. It's going to take all the shots at the pit bull to try and get the win. I just thought they tried to tell a story that maybe a lot of folk weren't they invested in. That's my argument, and I stand by it. Well, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you make me I, want steak now. Well, I, the, the, the five quid I I won at the top of the review, I'll give you that. Um, but Dal, that was largely a lot of shit. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't say that very often about someone who who uh, who makes a point on this show, but um, yeah, you were almost completely wrong in just about everything you said there. Um, they, you know, like I've never heard a praise of a wrestling match for being bad by design, and I don't think we can give this that. Um, but yeah, let, I mean, six months ago, we I think it was October, 
there was a match between Shane Douglas and Pitbull 2 at the ECW arena that was, I think, one of the most heated matches that we've ever seen in ECW. It crept into my top 10 list of matches of the year, not because of the work, the story in the ring was certainly better than this, but in terms of the heat and also in terms of the finish as well. But one of the things we speak about when we talk about ECW's Rose pay-per-view is that, you know, the idea, I think, to begin with was that this show was going to be in February. I think Paul Heyman's original idea was going to be this show was going to be 20 years on from, I think it was Chris Funk, was it first winning the NWA title or last winning it? Was that the was that the anniversary, February 1977? Does that sound right? Uh, it was his first title win. Right, that's what that so was. About that, that yeah. was the idea. And so the point surrounding that was that they had a lot of things in place for quite a while. The Sabu Taz match were going to reunite next. There's a few that essentially kept on ice until they formally knew they were going to do the do the feud, which was part of the praise. Uh, also part of the, the reason why they waited for so long and then kind of pulled the trigger in October, because they couldn't really do it any sooner. Um, and that's part of my criticism, sorry, of kind of how that was built. But the problem with this feud was that this feud peaked a long fucking time ago. Like, this feud started, well, probably when Francine turned to align with Douglas last June or something like that. And then we had the angle where Douglas, well, angle, the kind of injury that turned to an angle where Douglas broke Pitbull One's neck. And that spiraled forward into the great angle we had in, in October. And that kind of spiraled forward. And then they did Douglas versus Pitbull One, which in my mind was the match they should have left for the pay-per-view. They did that last month. But you got to the end of it, and Douglas keeps winning. And then, you know, okay, you know, he's the franchise in more ways than one. In, in, in some ways, he's the most well-polished act DCW we've got. But I don't think there was ever a need for this match in this circumstance. Like I kind of said, and I don't know whether, you know, I, I, I'm kind of working on the assumption that Pitbull 1 was legit injured, because I can't think of a reason why you'd leave him out otherwise. But they went out and had a match, and the crowd didn't care. And they try to have a, an epic match. And Shane Douglas comes out before this promo and has the, you know, I said the gall, does it Does it every other week, to call out you know, Ric Flair and Shawn Michaels, in this case indirectly. Like, if, if Ric Flair had a match this bad, I think he would have gone around to every single person in the building and refunded them their money. All $65,000 of the game. If he ever had a match that was this bad, they try to have a, an epic match, and yet the action was very sloppy. Pitbull 2 blew up quite early on. Um, and apparently one of the other things was that Douglas is one of the ECW guys that kind of likes to call the action in the ring, and Pitbull 2 doesn't. So the idea was they, they planned out a lot of this stuff beforehand, and very little of it worked. And you're doing all this stuff that's meant to be, you know, neck-based submissions. The fans are chatting, she's got herpes. That's a pretty good sign it's not working. Um, and, yeah, Dal, this match was really bad. There's no way of patching that up. It kind of goes back to what I said last one, so in the WWF, the WWF show about boxing, it's like... Pitbull 2 is the biggest guy we've seen so far tonight. When you get big guys, you're going to get a lot of holding, as you would in boxing, and this is their wrestling equivalent. I mean, I just think the the biggest thing that worked against this match, is you've said to yourself, is the time that's lapsed. Because if this had happened, say November to remember, if this had happened just like a month after the, the Pitbull 1 stuff, 
it could have worked at that point. But I mean, we're talking five, six months down the line now. So I mean, it's as much as we're going to come on to a match later on that's had a lot of hype. That's had a lot of hype because there's not been any interaction. These these had a lot of things working against them, and I mean, I, I'm I'm probably never even going to remember this match when we get to December. And we're talking about best things out of the out of the year, but I mean. For me, I, I don't know whether it's just because I'm in the high of the pay-per-view or not, but I think they've done as well as they could have been expected here, considering the time that's, Did the they time that's went on. I mean, how, what else could they have done that would have made it better with these two guys in the ring? I mean, Shane Douglas... Literally anything else. <laughs> Shane Douglas, right, he's honestly one of my favourite wrestlers. Right, I, I don't care. Folk don't like him, I don't care. I think he's good. And what... Shane Douglas can do on a microphone the way that he but I mean to me if you want to be a bad guy in wrestling I don't think it really depends on the shit that you do I think it's the way that the way that you do them and the way that you justify yourself doing them as he's out there at the start basically saying it's his thanks to glory be on high kind of the prophet Douglas that this show's even on pay-per-view that kind of shit makes Shane Douglas but when you put him in a ring with Pitbull 2, I mean, Pitbull 2 was pretty much like Sid Uday a few months ago when he was just getting these pops out of nowhere with pretty minimal kind of wrestling chops. And then you put him in here with Shane Douglas. I mean, I've seen I've seen Shane Douglas stink out the place with Tully Blanchard. If you can do that, it's certainly not discernible that you can't do it with Pitbull 2. But, I mean, they, they did try to tell a story. How how much the crowd bought into that, I think, got a big part in how this came across, at least to me, in a, in a pay-per-view broadcast. But, um, I mean, it wasn't good, but I, I still stand by the story that they tell. They could have done it better, but I don't know, man. I'm maybe just biased because it had Shane Douglas and Rick Rudd involved in it. Or, or maybe in this case, you're just trying too hard. Uh, <laughs> See, I'd, what I would have done to fix this, would I'd have half the time it went on, and I would have basically got them to do what they did four months ago when they had that match in November, which... But, but they didn't do that much more in that match. The story of that match was the heat. The story of that match was they do a move and Douglas would look at the crowd. The crowd would go fucking nuts because they were all over Douglas. That wasn't this. I don't think, mm. the, ma- I don't think, either, I don't think the match in, in October was particularly any significantly better than this. But it certainly was. But I don't know that it was by streets. Yeah, we're talking about a match last year that was probably the third best match in ECW. Up against this one, which may well be the worst match of ECW this year. The difference in the in-ring action was not significantly big. But the difference in the crowd reaction was huge amongst others. Mm. This match was significantly sloppier. I didn't help. They were trying to build heat, and Douglas goes to, you know, the guardrail's in the ring, and Douglas goes to crotch the uh, crotch Pitbull 2 on the guardrail, and the guardrail falls over. That's not good. But, you know, you can you can forgive fuck-ups, and there were fuck-ups in the six-man tag beforehand. You know, and admittedly, there were a billion things going on that match. So you barely noticed. When the match is good, you can forget the occasional fuck-up. When the match is bad, the fuck-up kind of reinforces people's viewpoint on the match. Go on, Chris. Mm. But, as I was saying, sort of, half the time, maybe sort of, you know, if it had just been ten minutes, it, it, you know, it might not have been great, but it wouldn't have left such a terrible taste in the mouth because it didn't go on so long. Um, 
obviously, as, as you were saying, the proper payoff should have been against Gary Wolf Football 1. That should have really been the big thing they've got to at this point. Or even at least, you know, a tag match. So it was the Pitbulls against Shane and someone else. So both of them could get at him. Um, I'm just hoping that we don't have any more of this and the Pitbulls go back to tag team matches as soon as possible and Shane goes on to something else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, let's talk about the post-match angle. Dale, what do you think of, of all that Rick Rude and, uh, and Brian Lee? I'm a bit withdrawn for this fall, Rick Rude thing, because I know you're not the biggest fan of what they've been doing in the, co- the last couple of months. With, well, do they know? Everybody clearly knows who it is, but then they're trying to kind of pass off that they don't know. I thought they'd... The end, I thought, was pretty innovative, the, the way that they came out. And then, there was, again, kind of similar to the match. It wasn't entirely without fuck-ups, but I thought the timing could maybe have been a bit better. Better orchestrated when you pretty much see Rick Rude first, and then there's the fallback with Brian Lee. And But, I mean, I, I, I think it was pretty good. I mean, I thought it was going to be a lot more kind of wrestling 101 than it turned out that it was. The way that they flipped it with... We did, it, it did sound a bit hokey coming over the the house speakers, but the way that they kind of tried to go about it, I thought it went quite well. When I didn't really know, kind of been away for ECW for a couple of, a couple of months, I didn't really know what the full story was with the the leather jackets and the motorcycle helmets coming out. I wasn't sure if this was a regular thing these days. If it was just for this, it is a bit fucking obvious when you're talking about a stipulation where the masked man's going to unmask and you're getting folk out in, in black-toot helmets. It's kind of a bit obvious where it's going. But um, the way they flipped it, I thought, was pretty good. Um, and, I mean, if, if ever you needed a testament just to the the power of Rick Rude, even just getting a getting a windshaft with a, a man in a ravishing robe is just clearly an off-the-floor Francine. Even just the idea of being that Rick Rude was kissing her was just an off-the-floor Chris? I like the twist with it being Lee that was in the mask and sort of was the one that gave the kiss and stuff. Because it means that... Because obviously Rude is not going to be wrestling. We know that we're not, the payoff of this is not going to be Rude versus Douglas because Rude isn't going to ever be getting in a ring again. So, you know, him having his new Patsy being Lee means that hopefully we can still have Rude and Douglas interacting, but it doesn't need the pit balls about and we can get away from that. Um, it, it was blatantly obvious when as Dell sort of obviously not seeing it all but these guys in motorbike helmets and leather jackets have never been about before and now need to be there to be security it was sort of ah so who's going to be under one of them then it it worked because it gave something sort of you know a visual difference to it and you know the blatant switch of Lee being in the robe to Rude being in the bike and stuff. But, you know, hopefully it can move things away from where we've been and give us give us something new to look forward to. 
I'd argue the Rick Rude story is one of the worst storylines ECW have ever put on. Um, you know, not worst in bad. You know, there's there's a special place in hell for the shoot fight storyline last year, amongst other things. But the you've got Rick Rude available to you. There are so many things you could have done with Rick Rude that would have been compelling and interesting. Even a Rick Rude that can't get in the ring. Rude's strength, to a degree, has always been his talking. Like, you know, you have Rick Rude around, there's thousands of things you could do with it. And I think this is one of the, this is one of the worst executions of anything in it that we've seen in this timeline. You get a guy like Rick Rude, and you put him up against Douglas, which kind of makes sense. The premier talker of ECW against Rick Rude. Fair enough. And it's not easy booking a, a kind of feud with, without any real payoff. But I think they've bungled this at every turn. I mean, Rude comes out in the mask. And ECW, a, a, a promotion that knows their crowd, thinks they can get Rick Rude's voice past the ECW arena. <laughs> so something, they didn't even get that far. They worked out Rude before he started speaking. They definitely fucking realised the minute he opened his mouth. And yet we get Joey Styles for the next two months kind of slowly going from, oh, who is it, to, oh, well, we don't know who it is. Yes, we do. Like ECW, like the, the promotion that will shoot on anything, that will ruin surprises and all that kind of thing. Like, this is, yeah, that wasn't that difficult. And then Rude goes on holiday. Of course he goes on holiday. So he doesn't appear in fucking February. And then he comes back in March. And he, you know, it's the basic, I want to fuck with the franchise. Okay. And he's got the hots for Francine. Okay. Why? Well, not why has he got the hots for Francine. I understand that. Why does he want to fuck with Douglas? And that's kind of, you know, a point they have never really answered. So we get to this angle. And yeah, the angle was okay. It was pretty obvious Douglas was, was under one of uh, the, Rue was under one of the three. Fair enough. And, you know, it was a nice little switch with, with Brian Lee. By all accounts, that wasn't particularly a, a long-planned-out story. Uh, Brian Lee got injured. Um, the original plan was Brian Lee was going to take the spot in the main event, and then they, they, they rotated that around. But the story they've been telling since is that Lee, who's... Brian Lee's a hired gun. That's his gimmick, right? You need something doing, you pay Brian Lee money, and he gets it done. Well, he almost does. Usually. And the story they're now telling is that Rick Rude is paying Brian Lee to get at Shane Douglas. And yet they've never explained why. And even so, it's like, oh, even if that's it, like, this was what that was for? This was the payoff for that? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's a big home run storyline with Rick Rude, given that you can't put him in the ring at the end of the day. There were so many things you could have done with this. And who knows? They, they could salvage it. They finally got Rude out from under the mask. We can finally see him. Fuck me, he looks different from the last time we saw him. Three years out of the ring and three years out of the gym and three years off the juice. Rick Rude looks like a normal guy. Um, there's a reason in part people didn't quite work out it was him under the under the motorcycle helmet because it doesn't look like Rick Rude. Look like he's wasting away. Um, but yeah, I just think it's been a, a poorly executed angle. The match was bad. Crowd didn't really care. Uh, this was the low point of the show. Over move on. Two, it's Taz and Sabu up next. In the video package, they even reference Paul Violence. Of course they do. Next up, it's Taz and Bill Alfonso versus Sabu. Sabu just appears during Taz's entrance. Apparently, he fucked up his cue at that point. He's vain for blood. They square off. The fans start clapping, which hardly screams blood feud. 
They exchange Flax and Taz sends Sabu down. Taz goes for the tab mission out the gate, but Sabu blocks it. Taz rolls through into an ankle lock. Taz invites Sabu to shoot for the leg. Taz gets in the mount and has cut Sabu. Sabu sends Taz into the front first row, sets up a chair in the ring, and hits a triple jump splash of sorts onto Taz. We're finally brawling into the crowd, and they've shown some phenomenal restraints not during the show previously. Sabu goes for a running splash, but Taz moves, and Sabu hits the guardrail. We're back in the ring, and both guys get on their knees with the exchange of punches. Sabu throws a punch, but Taz grabs the arm and gets an armbar in. This looks like more of a shoot fight than the shoot fight did. Sabu hits a somersault leg drop, sets up a chair and hits a leg drop into the corner. He goes for another, but Taz moves, then drops Sabu headfirst onto the chair. Tabu, tabu. Taz catches Sabu with a horrid-looking clothesline for the big gas. Sabu hits a triple jump something, but lands on his feet after Taz moves. Taz hits a belly-to-belly over the guardrail. For the first time in the match, we hear from Bill Alfonso. Almost forgot he was there up until that point. Team Taz bridge a table across the ring to the guardrail. Sabu puts Taz on it. Taz sets for a suplex. Tabu, Tabu, fucking hell. Sabu blocks it, goes for a DDT, but Taz drops him and Sabu crashes and burns through the table. And Alonso Alfonso is alive. Sabu hits the Hurricane Rana from the top. That looked really good. Sabu returns to the top and hits a big leg drop across the ring. Taz hits a lovely T-bone suplex, then a normal one. Sabu counters with a suplex of his own. He mocks Taz's arm cross. Taz goes for a clothesline, but Sabu spots it, and Sabu goes for the Taz mission, which gets a good reaction. Taz hits the T-bone suplex, then locks in the Taz mission. Sabu passes out, and Taz wins the match cleanly. Uh, we will review the match first. Del, what do you think? I know you stumbled your way through that, but if these two have had that actually managed to go on the same page, Tabu would be a fucking good tag team name for them. In all fairness, um, this this was one of these matches that you're really going to struggle to live up to the hype because it's been that good and it's been that long. But um, even just at the start, I mean, it did have a big match feel. Yeah, I mean, even the standoff between them looks pretty looks pretty cool. For everything that the last match kind of lacked an investment, this just delivered on it. <laughs> um, if I was a bit Critically, I would probably have liked a bit more Sabu. I don't know what his what his story is at the minute. If he's just like 100% Sabu healthy, or if he's actually can anywhere near a 100% normal person healthy. But um, I thought it was a good match. I mean, it's kind of the polar opposite of WrestleMania three, but I think there was quite a lot of irresistible force and movable object to the two of them, especially at the start when you see. Sabu kind of running about and you expect him to be flitting off his shit everywhere and then you just get Taz standing there with the arms crossed um, there was as you get in every Sabu match a couple of wee fuck ups here and there that the crowd kind of need a word really in their ear about their fucked up chance but um, I thought Joey Styles was really good at kind of covering them he's kind of another worry about him coming in live where they'd be able to kind of talk about that stuff but he did really well the blood added a lot of realism it with Sabu and his nose, whether that was what kind of slowed him down, I don't know. But um, overall, I thought they probably did about as well as they could have here. Um, I did like, just kind of talking about the match itself, I, I liked it. I thought it was really good. It was definitely a step up for the last one, and I thought they did well to kind of match the almost unrivaled expectations going into it. 
Yeah, Chris, I think that was the, the the big analysis on the match itself. Was it was a good match, but it was never going to live up to the hype. Yeah, the the thing is with this, there's there's very few things that they could have done that could have lived up to that build. Um, it it's an age old problem when something's built up that well. Can it be that good? Um, but for what this was, and it was a really, really, really good match. Um, I liked the aspect of that Sabu couldn't get all his usual shit in because Taz sort of it showed that Taz knew what to expect. He sort of, you know, he would hit them with his with the stiff clotheslines. He kept them in the suplexes. Um, I like that he he passed. He made him pass out. He didn't sort of quit or you know tap out or anything. He choked him out. Um, it gives Sabu legitimacy even in defeat that he is harder than an old pair of shoes, and it makes uh, Taz seem even more of a killer and more of a badass. That he he choked out the the homicidal, genocidal, death-defying maniac with his own bare hands. He he took down this in in a way myth, mythical being of this crazed savage that the Sabu character is. He could tame him. So I mean I mean both of these come out winning. Um and yeah, you know, it was never gonna live up to the hype, but it was far better than it could have been, because this could have been a complete disaster very easily. And I mean they did really, really well to make it a great match. I don't know if it was a great match, but I think it was good. Um, yeah, I actually don't think these two particularly meshed all that well. I know mean, I don't know about anyone else, but the, the biggest surprise to me was the match starts, and it's like, oh shit, Taz is short. <laughs> that was my first reaction. Like, you, you know, we haven't seen these two square off very often for obvious kind of reasons. And 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 you know, Taz has now been the biggest guy, but you know, they 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 start they, they go nose to nose. Like, oh fuck, they're nose to nose. That was my my first reaction. Um, the match was good. Um, it was, you know, they kind of had the the first half, the first kind of third of the match was Taz wrestling Sabu in a Taz style. The second third of the match was more kind of Sabu's brawly first action outside the ring, etc., etc. And they had this kind of final third that was meant to be a back and forth. I quite like that. Um, I don't know whether this match felt like it was missing three or four minutes from the end in terms of like it, it never really got that close to being epic. And I kind of get the sense the fans, not so they were sat on their hands, but more they were, you know, when you build up a match this much, uh, uh, you know, the anticipation kind of moves away from how good the match will be and more kind of how it will finish, who will win. And almost like the the transmission spot, you felt like something was going to happen in some way, shape or form. And then Sabu just passes out. And I quite like that. I mean, I, I don't like it from the sense of what comes next. 
But the inherent idea of you have a big match and then one guy just wins. Like, I quite like that. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the the biggest story of the match is, you know, they, they built this match over and over and over again. And it was never going to meet those expectations. I don't think it ever did, but they put on a good match that the crowd were into, the crowd were invested in, almost to the detriment of the atmosphere. The crowd were kind of watching to a point. Um, and yeah, to a point, kudos for the for, for the finish they went with. There were a lot of different ways it could have gone, and I think most of them would have been worse. But that was that was the match, and this is the post match. Sabu, listen to me. <laughs> what happened was I choked you out. Now listen to me. I don't want you to mistake this for me blowing smoke up your ass because I ain't doing that. But you gave me the fight of my life. And I don't want, it might be bullshit, you need to shut your mouth and have some respect. As I was saying, I don't want to sound corny, but you brought me to my life, the end of my life, and I got a lot of respect for you, and it's hard for me to say that. But I'll tell you what, anytime you want a rematch with me, I would love the opportunity for you to take me to my limit. Now I want to shake your hand. is a bigger man than we all thought he was. Sabu accepted his hand. Taz won this matchup. He won it clean with the Kataha Jemay. Extended a hand to Sabu. And that's what he gets. And Bill Alfonso thinks he's gonna take on Sabu and Van Dam by himself. What the hell is Fonzie doing? That's right, he's team tagged through and through. He's about to get the beating of his life in the hands of Sabu and Rob Van Dam. Fonzie, don't do it. You may be better off just getting the hell out of there. Regroup and find another. Stabu teacher. What a double cross. What a lovely stinking bastard. A double cross. Bill Alfonso sold out before the matchup even began. Taz grabs the mic, 
he goes to give some, Sabu some props and a fan shouts, bullshit. Taz says he took it to his limit and officially offers that a handshake. Sabu accepts and raises Taz's hands, then they hug. That gets some booze. Here comes Rob Van Dam. He nails Taz from behind. Taz goes to attack Van Dam, but Sabu hits Taz and the two go after him. Sabu hits the Arabian face buster onto Taz. Taz goes for a triple drop moonsault, fucks it up, goes again. Like the, the table Taz laying on the outside kind of half collapsed anyway, so Sabu just threw himself through it. Fawzi steps into the ring, takes an age of taking off his shirt, revealing another Taz shirt, takes that off and reveals a Sabu shirt. He raises both of the arms of Rob Van Dam and Sabu. Alfonso says Taz cost him a lot of money. He had a lot of money on Sabu, which gets some laughs from the crowd. Van Dam says fuck and says he likes working on Mondays and call Bill Alfonso his new agent. Del. If you're going to have a kind of main event level match, say maybe half two-thirds of the way through the show, ending in a clean submission with the, the loser passing it, following it up after the bell with a double turn, try not to do it, maybe what, two, three weeks after, probably one of the greatest wrestling matches I've ever seen. It's probably not going to be that good. Um, apparently, apparently they had to submit the overall plans for this show two months ago. Mm. Is what I have read. So apparently it wasn't meant to be a copycat in sense. Mm. And also there's, you know, sorry to cut you off, Del, but there's also, there's also the fact that if you were going to try and be like the Bret Hart Steve Austin turn from a few weeks ago, that was good. <laughs> if, if, I, if I'm going to copy, like the, the, if I'm going to copy one of the main attributes of the Bret Hart Steve Austin turn, I will try and copy the fact that, that was really fucking good. Mm. And I don't think they got that here. I don't think they had anything of an organic nature at all. To be quite, I think that's what they were. I think that's what they were struggling on. The Austin Hart situation was just utterly organic. Some would say orgasmic, but I'll go with organic. And um, that's, I mean, we we talk about it a lot of times where whether things feel kind of real or if they feel forced. I mean, this was just utterly forced with, with Fonzie turning on Taz. And I mean, I'm, I'll put my positive heart back on because I just like arguing. There is positives to this where if you're going to try and make Taz a baby, which he undoubtedly has been becoming, and getting rid of Fonzie and getting Fonzie with somebody that can't talk makes sense, that's going to help that fact. But if you want to look at the outcome of this as Taz being a blue-eyed boy, then he did deliver on a promise. He, he spoke about he was going to he was going to choke Sabu. He delivered on that. He shook his hand. He was a man about it. And, I mean, that does make sense. Again, going back to the Fonzie situation, Taz has been coming on that much. He can buy him, and Fonzie more feels like an add-on. I mean, if you look back, what, a year ago, 18 months ago, Taz kind of needed Fonzie to get him into the place that he was at, but he's almost outgrown it. And um, it makes more sense to stick him with Sabu, but it just, I don't know, man, it just really felt a bit a bit forced for me. Um I'm sure they'll make the. I'm sure they'll make the best of it because Taz is a killer, Fonzie is a a heat magnet. But 
I just don't think they. I just don't think they needed that. To be honest, Chris, I like the end result. I think Fonzie as a heel manager, um, especially with the ego of RVD and the the chaos that is Sabu, is going to be amazing. And just sort of going into the rest of the month, his his vit role in promos is great. How they did it in this show, I don't think. I think they could have, you know, left it for the next sort of TV tapings or done something there. Um, obviously, I know you as you're saying they had to sort of submit what the plans were for the show a couple of months back, but no doubt they could have sort of, you know, vetoed it at the last minute and gone. Actually, we don't need to do it like that. Ah, uh, no, I think that'd be the point of submitting the plans. Would be that. That would be what you were doing, I think, to a point. But, you know, because obviously... He, then the, he could have got the question was, what did they submit? Did they mm. submit, we'll have Taz do, a, a, you know, this big speech that makes no sense in the context of, of, of an average to good match? Did they submit, Bill Alfonso really, really poorly executes a turn? Did they submit a turn that makes no sense? And did they submit Sabu fucking up the spot? Like, what what was submitted? Because my criticism of this was that, that every turn they got almost everything wrong. Like, uh, I, I agree with both of you. I think the, you know, Taz becoming a babyface was kind of an inevitability. If it hadn't have been now, it would have been a few months down the road. That was coming. Um, But all of this, I mean, where to fucking start with this? So Taz grabs the mic. And, you know, it becomes very... <laughs> all credit to the fan. Taz gets one line out to kind of suggest he's going to give props to Sabu. Fan just goes, Bell bullshit. Yeah. And, and, and Taz, and we've seen this before. Like, remember last year with the shoot fights when the fans are chanting bullshit, bullshit, whatever it was. And Taz kind of goes, yeah, you're right, it's bullshit. The fan chants bullshit. And, then, and Taz goes, you might be right, but... <laughs> Like that—that's—that's that's a pretty clear giveaway that, like, because the idea is that an ECW, if, if, if there's one thing ECW does to excess almost more than anything else, it's the big pro-match, pro-match loving promo. They do that a lot. Canada did it a couple of months ago. But Taz, Taz starts to cut this pro. In fact, and, you know, but you, you can't do that. We just had a great match. If you didn't just have the great match, you can't do that speech. That was point number one. So they hug. Out comes Van Dout, and they do the turn. You know, it was, it was okay. It was fine. There were, there were many other ways of doing the turn. I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot back to the finish of the match in a minute because I think you need to understand the context before you can start looking at the finish of the match. The turn was fine. Okay, not too bad. So we've got Taz, we've got Taz being attacked by Sabu and Van Damme. Fair enough. And then, so they go to they attack him. They get him on the outside, and Van Damme puts him on a table. Sabu goes for the triple jump moonsault, and he gets on the top rope, and he slips. So he resets. Van Damme tries to beat up Taz a bit more just to make him sell on the legs of the table collapse. Sabu gets on the thing and just throws himself over and kind of just bundling himself through the table. So that was that. That didn't look great either. And so Taz goes down the outside selling for a move that he hasn't really taken, but that was the idea. So they get back in the ring and in steps Fonzie. Fonzie takes off his, his orange shirt and reveals a, a Team Taz black shirt. And then Fonzie spends about 15 seconds attempting to take a shirt off. He does try and rip it off once or twice and then kind of thinks better of it. Ends up just whipping it off over his head. 
And it's a Sabu shirt. Okay. And so, and actually, no, there, there's, there's the promo that's very slight before that, or the audio you can hear, where Alfonso gives some shit to Chaz, and then he, he says, I lost some money, and I bet it on you, Sabu. And then he cuts this promo that, you know, makes very little sense. He says he has a lot of money on Sabu. But then there begs the question of, what, why do you have the money on Sabu? And then, in which case, why turn on Taz after Taz wins the match? Because if your frustration with Taz is that you've lost money, that's already happened. Right, regardless of what you do afterwards, you've already lost your cash. But Taz beat Sabu clean in the middle of the ring. Why would Fonzie then side with Sabu? That doesn't make any sense. But I, I think we've we've all agreed on that, and I'll bring two guys in a sec, which I just made this final point. I think we've all agreed that the overall general point isn't necessarily a bad one. Taz is going to become a baby face, that's kind of happening. Sabu becoming a heel is a bit clunky. But as someone kind of, as was kind of written in the aftermath of the show, one of the big problems with the, the Taz Sabu feud was that Sabu couldn't talk. And you know, we speak about Paul Heyman's job list. It, it would have made sense to get Heyman on TV once or twice to reprise his role as a de facto Sabu manager in the lead up to this, just to give that side of the story. But you, you know, there are other managers. You don't have to put Sabu with Bill Alfonso if it makes no sense, and all of that. But Fonzie with Bandan makes sense, and I think this this will kind of work. But then you kind of go back to, well, if you were going to do the turn, why not incorporate the turn into the finish? We talk about borrowing lines and ideas from, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe maybe they were inspired by the Austin finish, and that Sabu, who was push, pushing blood, just passed out in the submission. Maybe that was the idea. If that was the idea, they failed miserably, let's say that. But if you're going to do this turn, if... If Alfonso's got a fuckload of money on Sabu, why not interfere in the match? Why not help Sabu win the match? Because the big question, Chris, at the end of all of this, and respond to any of the things I've just said, where is the investment in seeing the rematch? Taz already won. Like, this was not a finish that set up a rematch. No, this how this has ended it is very much sort of one and done. The The only... Thing would be, does Taz want to get at Fonzie? But then Fonzie really hasn't done anything other than sort of, you know, saying that he he had the money on Sabu. Hasn't really sort of done anything to warrant him wanting to go after him because he's already proven his point. He choked out Sabu. Um, as as, we, as you were saying, obviously. I think putting the the biggest heel and the biggest dick in the last couple of years of in all of wrestling with someone who can't talk is a great thing. But yeah, it, I think this one's one of those of I think mean, in about six months' time we can look back at it and say yes, it worked or no, it didn't. I don't think we can do it sort of straight after the fact. Yeah. I think the, the obvious story is obviously with the finish. I mean, you just get 
you get Fonzie kind of attacking, kind of hitting Taz with a chair, or you get Team Taz getting involved, and then Fonzie backs him off. And it is the finish that that should do. But then obviously that takes away from Taz choking him out longer than the line. I mean, the only I can think is we have a loser leaves town, and it's Taz Sabu. If Taz wins and Fonzie fucks off, goes to WCW and makes a tag team with Nick Patrick. I'd like to see that. But um, for a company that's really good with their innovation and their, and their kind of outside-the-box thinking, including maybe other two kind of just does what's been happening for years, this, it just didn't really happen. As I say, I think it just goes back to the full organic nature of it, for it's, it just didn't feel real. And I don't know, man, it's, it, it's an odd one of these things for I'll just say, wait and see what happens. I mean, this might be the best thing that's happened to Sabu, because... Sabu's is as innovative a performer as you're going to see and if we can get somebody to talk for him I was personally more invested in Sabu when he'd um, when he'd Paul E. William um, I know Sabu wasn't a great fan of the, the lecter mask stick but I mean going back to them when he had somebody that was talking for him and building him up as a superstar which he undoubtedly could be I mean, it's, it's just going to be nice to see Fonzie with somebody else. I just think they could have went a bit cleaner about the way that they, that they delivered that. Yeah, Sabu was the guy that used to moan that he was being put in tag teams with, of all people, Taz, mm. um, a couple of years ago. Um, this character's taken a, a hell of a change of direction in the last couple of years. But, yeah, it, you know, it, it, it all stems back to, you know, a lot of this show, I don't want to call it arrogance, but a lot of this show, I think ECW showed that you could know your audience, but you can't definitely know your audience. And I almost wonder whether, well, one, perhaps they expected Sabu and Taz to have a better match, but also whether the fans just might believe it was a great match just because of the build. But they kind of set up the match, have the match, and yeah, you want to talk about copying Austin and Bret Hart. Why not have why not have Sabu struggling with the transmission a lot longer? That was kind of one of the big surprises, was that Sabu just passed out straight away. Or I believe Dan Seven was uh, in attendance. We could have had him referee, you know. Well, well, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. I uh, could have had him in the match. Um... But yeah, and, and then they, they tried three or four different things after the match, and I think they all missed. Uh, that's not ideal. Uh, but we'll see. Like, I I don't inherently disagree with the, the direction, but I kind of feel like if you were to give me the start of the first few minutes of this match and then tell me where it finished, I would have written this in a completely different way. And I, uh, of all of the finishes, Taz choking out Sabu clean is an end of the feud. Or at least something, you know, anything. Like, I don't know. Like, I, you know, it, it's almost like they wrote the finish and then someone else wrote the story right up into it. They, they wrote where this angle was ended the show and then went, right, fuck it. Someone else can fill in the middle. Someone else hadn't read the end. Or they've written it in two different languages. It, it just, it just didn't add up and it doesn't add up now. Um, the, the, the turn of Alfonso should have meant more. The turn of Sabu should have meant more. And a finish like that should have meant more. And it didn't. But there we are. Anyway. Up for our co-main event, it's Tommy Dreamer introduces the Colin commentator. Fans illustrating their chant, uh, illustrating their class chant, show your tits at Beulah. 
Uh, a quick sidebar on the, the commentary. Joe Styles obviously calling this show live. Uh, one thing we, we don't always discuss when we talk about Joe Styles and commentary that most of it's all, all of it's done in post production, so this is slightly different. Uh, and they were basically sat um not in the Eagle's Nest, they were sat in the upper deck basically over the entrance way or over the fire exit of the building. So if you're if you're watching from the hard camera position, it's kind of the the back right hand side of the building was where they were sat. Chris, a very quick word on Stars' commentary. I thought he improved over the course of the night, but I thought he was a bit clunky at times. Like, don't get me wrong, it's difficult. A one-man, a one-man call for two and a half hours is not something very many people are doing. Um, I thought at times he was guilty of just calling moves, i.e., just move, 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 move. But I thought he settled into it as the show went on. I think um, he, I think he, he liked most of the performers at the beginning were just sort of getting their feet together for that sort of start of it being a live paper and it mean it being such a big thing. Um but he really did sort of do his usual high level of, of commentary and the fact that he's he's out there on his Todd for the majority of the night obviously he has Bueller and Tommy for the main event with him. But he's on his Todd, he's doing it all live where you know he is the only voice and he's got to do it the whole three hour show in one there's no sort of bouncing off somebody else or taking a couple of minutes here and there because someone else is talking he he i mean he did a really really good job on it no i mean i I thought he was rock solid actually throughout the night there was a couple of kind of you could tell he was kind of trying to get his bearings early on. I, I feel horrible for him that somebody was clearly just taking the piss out and with the microphones that they kept getting him on night. But um, he rattled through it, man. I was, I've kind of picked out bits throughout the throughout the show, but I think he's done well to cover fuck up, so he's kind of tell a good story. And I wouldn't have known that. I wouldn't have known that. Um, there was matches going on in in Japan the night before, and then telling the story about kind of. A bit of jet lag playing its playing its part in the the Japanese six man, but um, he's he's as good as anybody going these days. I mean, you hear a lot about Jim Ross these days meant to be quite good. I, I don't really entirely see it myself, but he is good compared to Vince, I suppose. Um, you get like you know all the all the folk who maybe talk about Gordon Soley, but um, he, for a one man booth man, I don't think there's anybody else going about these days that could. It could carry it off, and I think it's just a testament that we've never, we've never called them out for um, for essentially doing something that no one's ever done before—a live pay-per-view, two and a half, two and three-quarter hour show on your Todd's bar the, the couple that's coming up. I, I just think he's an absolute stalwart. Yeah, um, say no more. Really, worked really, really hard. Um, I don't think it was perfect, but you know, like he's. By some distance, the best commentator in North America. Jim Ross is in that ballpark as well. We're hearing him a bit more and more now. And Vincent Mann's slowly starting to move backstage. Um, but, you know, he has some imperfections. And I, I think it, at times it was a bit one-dimensional, his commentary. But, you know, take that that six-man tag. I mean, he was trying to get that story over and get all the action over and everything else. For two and a half hours on your own, sterling effort. Anyway. To the co-main, Stevie Richards with the Meanie, uh, Blue Meanie, Supernova, 7-Eleven, and who they were calling Thomas One-Inch Worm Rodman. They dressed up, <laughs> they dressed somebody up as Dennis Rodman, the uh, 
the wonders of the blue world order will never cease to amaze. Versus the Sandman versus Terry Funk for the right to face Raven. I think my stopwatch expired during Sandman's entrance. The bell rings and Sandman offers Funk a beer. Funk tells Sandman to drink it himself, which he does until he gobs the contents into Stevie's face. We start with a double headlock spot. Stevie schoolboy Sandman for a two. Funk goes for the spinning toe hold. No allegiances to this one at all. Well, until Sandman throws Richards onto Funk and he goes to do it again, but this time he back drops Richards. That was a nice spot. Funk hits a pair of neck breakers. Well, actually four. Sandman returns with a fucking ladder. Lobs it in the ring. Manages to hit Funk with it. That was fantastic. <laughs> Sandman for the floor just threw a chair, hit Funk square in the head. That was great. Um, Funk climbs the ladder. Richards clearly isn't in the right spot and has to run into position to catch the leg as Funk hits a moonsault. Sandman grabs the ladder and comes off to the top with it. Richards drop kicks the ladder into Sandman for a near fall. I'm assuming this is elimination rules. They haven't outright said it, but ECW heroes usually are. Richards whips Sandman into the corner where the ladder is for a two. Sandman and Richards climb opposite sides of the ladder. Funk falls into it and both guys fall into the ropes. Funk helicopters with the ladder. Of course, this means that both of his opponents are obliged, stupidly, to get up and walk into the spinning ladder multiple times. Sandman and Funk trade shots by the ladder against the ropes. Richards comes off the top and sort of seesaws it into them. Richards lines up a super kick. A big one hits Sandman clean, but he kicks out two. Big bullshit chance for that. Richard super kicks Funk. He and Salman both pin him, but they both kick out. Richard's in the crowd. Salman seesaws the ladder by Richards, then does a dive to the outside, catapult it into him. Funk hits both with a chair. Salman buggers off again. He's back with a proper hard bin as Funk hits the suplex. Salman attacks, attempt the cra- attempts to take the trash can apart. doesn't work because he just hits Richards with it. Richards then gets suplex onto it. Richards takes a spike pile driver. Funk uses Salman to hit a slingshot leg drop onto the ladder on top of Richards for a near fall. They put ladders. Uh, they put the ladder against the ropes. Salman comes off of the top and seesaws the ladder that goes flying over the top rope and quite far into the first few rows of crowd. Uh, first few rows of the crowd. Nobody was hurt, but if you watch very closely. You would see Todd Gordon scurry his way out there about <laughs> sixty seconds later. Everyone was okay. Sandman lobs a bunch of barbed wire tangled in streamers into the ring. Funk start hitting Sandman with... Oh, hang on, I missed a bit here. Uh, so the ladder goes into the front row. That misses everyone. Funk and Sandman then hit a double powerbomb onto Richards, and that eliminates him. Sandman lobs a bunch of barbed wire tangled in streamers into the ring. Funk starts hitting Sandman with the barbed wire, and it even starts sticking to him, which gets some gasps. Sandman wraps himself in it. Of course he does. Sandman drops the usual leg break defying leg drop from the top rope. That looked horrible. Stevie's still around. He hits a Stevie kick on Sandman who ends up lying down in the corner. Sandman then has to completely readjust his position. Funk gets on the top rope, hits a moonsault and wins the match. Del? A lot of folks were saying this was really, really good. I wasn't as high on it, but um, this year... Wait, this is the match you weren't as high on? Honestly, Come on. honestly, I wasn't as high on this. I've actually marked it the same as uh, Pitbull Shane, for what that's worth. But um, the three of them, the, the three of them worked their arses off in this. I mean, it was so high the work rate in this. I mean, whether that was because they kind of knew... Elimination rules We've still got the main To come We're kind of running Tight in time I don't know how much Of that was forecast But um, The three of them Just went hell for leather 
in this. Similar to what we've seen, there is a couple of bits like Stevie going for the the seesaw didn't really kind of carry off that well, but again, it just adds to the realness. I love seeing Sandman doing that that vault or the tap rope because he just shouldn't be able to do it, but he somehow does. Um, I, I'm a great fan of pun, Bob. And did you see the Terry Funk kind of tribute to JYD in the middle with the kind of kneeling running headbutt? I saw it. I didn't register it. He's the uh, he's the funk yard dog. You having that? <laughs> no, never mind. But no, the, the three of them really worked their arse off in this. It was kind of a bit ropey with the elimination kind of side. I should have expected it. It's ECW and it's a three-way dance, but it kind of killed it a bit in the middle for me when Sandman's just letting Stevie try and pin Terry Funk and vice versa. Um, but no, it, it, played out, it played out pretty well. There are a couple of, as you say, just sore-ass looking bumps in the especially with like, the ladder, but um, as I say, the work rate for the three of them, I thought they did, I thought they did brilliant. Chris? This was much better than it, I expected it to be, and on paper had any right to be. Um, obviously, we know what happens when Sandman turns up. It's normally hideous hideous thing, but he looked like he had his working nikes on for, for once in his life. Um, maybe the fact that he was putting over Funk and he has respect for Funk meant that he actually was going to turn up and do his job as a wrestler. Um, <laughs> Funk's doing stuff that, at his age, he really shouldn't be doing. Like Those moonsaults off the ladder and things like that is is well above what he really should be doing you know, he doesn't need to do this at 57. Um, 53, you get a man he's due, let's say. 53. 53. But it, he, got, does, he doesn't need, Chris right, he doesn't need to be doing this at 57. Let's say that. <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact of how they use the ladder sort of in a way that hasn't been done in sort of the normal sort of when you see ladder matches in the Fed or in WCW, um, you know they'll they'll whip them into it. They'll you know slightly hit them with it, but wearing it around your head and using it to spin around was a very very novel way of doing it. Yes, but I, I, I'd rather the, the the guys didn't get up, take the the ladder shot, do a back bump, get up and take it again. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I know the character collective IQ of Richards and Salman isn't the highest, um, but still, self-preservation was that. I thought it was pretty good. Um, I, I, I might make the argument this was the best match of the night, um, in the sense that it was balmy, but booking-wise, it pretty much made sense, and not a lot on this show did. Um, we had three characters, all very on very different stories and tangents, they didn't try and fuck about. They didn't try anything too clever. You know, there are some clunky shit. And, and we talk about, uh, like, you know, everything being right. On another day, Sandman wipes out two people in the front row with a ladder <laughs> flying in their direction, then comes off the top rope with a leg drop and break, breaks his other leg. So on another day, those things happen. As it was, it was just, you know, a, 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 just a fun match to watch for, for all of its criticisms. Um, You know... I kind of 
I, I, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I had in my mind watching the results of this show that, you know, it's all been about funk and, you know, the, some of the stuff with funk, fucking hell. The, the, the pro with funk by his father's graveside. Of the, <laughs> of the, oh, fuck me. Like, you know, he was if you announced the main event there and there. But I kind of watched all this and thought, you could just make Richards. And they may still do. That's kind of one of the stories coming out of t- TVs. Um, but yeah. Very good match. Anyway, we move straight into the main event. Uh, Raven runs out basically straight after the match, and it's him versus Terry Funk for the ECW title. Apparently, the original plan of this match had this match to go over 20 minutes. What, um, after the three-way? Yes. Jesus. Uh, su- suffice to say, it didn't. Uh, Funk has a huge cut near his kidney. Raven has a chair. Funk is streaming blood, so they calls, uh, call uh, the... The call for the ref as fans chant for Tommy. Funk is pouring blood out of his head. Raven grabs the table that has a broken leg, so Raven gets another one. Raven lays Funk across the table, then goes for a run-up and sort of corkscrews through the table. Raven then knocks out the daughter, uh, the doctor who comes to tend to him. So Reggie Bennett, a woman, just to be clear, runs out and hits a really bad pile driver onto Funk. Raven tells Dreamer he's going to end Funk's career in front of his feet. Uh, while all that Reggie Bennett stuff was going on. A couple of other people came out and stacked three tables right where the com- on top of each other, right where the commentary team was. That comes important to say. Um, Dreamer goes Raven up to the announcer's position, but out comes Big Dick Dudley. He hits Dreamer with a garbage can. Dreamer then counters and does a terrible choke slam through the conveniently stacked table. I say I, I don't really quite thought it was, but I think uh, Big Dick Dudley was so worried about the bump he kind of forgot about the move. And so Dreamer goes to choke slam him and he, he mistied it and then just threw himself off the ledge, which looks comedic more than it should have done. Raven gets t- uh, chucked a garbage can. He catches it and throws it back at Dreamer. Drew runs into the ring, hits the DDT, Funk comes to and pins Raven, who kicks out. Funk then hits an inside cradle, and the ref is kind of coming round because he got DDT by Raven earlier as well. The ref counts to three immediately after, and we have a new ECW champion. Chris? Um, I liked how Raven coming out super vicious. You know, this that's what... A, his character should be doing, because, you know, he's just sort of watched his opponent go for a 20-minute match with, you know, doing stuff that he really shouldn't be doing with a ladder and getting the absolute living bejesus kicked out of him to go, right, I can take him out right now. And sort of going in the way he did was great. Um, I liked... The story and the tension of obviously the doctor coming down to sort of look at him and sort of see if they were going to try and stop it. Don't get why the the woman came out and did the pile driver, but you know this is ECW. Sometimes these things just don't make sense, as we didn't hear or see anything of her in the rest of the month. Um, seeing Big Dick back is always you know good to see, um, but again not seen for the rest of the month what was his rhyme or reason for being with Raven and as you said that that choke slam uh, through those tables I don't know whether it was just because he di- he didn't know or want to know how to take the drop or whether you know he was hoping that Tommy would pick him up more to get a bit more air on it so he sort of it looked a bit better 
Um, we we can all but guess on that one. Um, but yeah, it it was a good end to the show, and the way that Funk won sort of really, really works as well because it was a very sort of underdog sort of using using his knowledge and his experience of how to be a wrestler and of wrestling holds and moves to get a win where the advantage and where the moment was to get it. So. Uh, it, all, it all got quite crazy quite quick, didn't it? Um, it was, I mean, we are talking like one of the quickest matches here. I mean, obviously, Funks just went through hell in the in the match before. But as, as Lacey says, Raven came out at the start, man. You can tell they're running tight for I've never seen Raven work that fast in my life. The way that he came out, the, the run-in to get the heat because he's the bad guy. You get him then just running around ringside to get in the stuff that they were that they were going to do. It's a brilliant story for Funk. We have all seen it coming. But um, some of the stuff that was going on, like Reggie Bennett coming out, who just looks like a tank. The stuff with Big Dick coming back, then the table bit up at the Eagle's Nest, the finish, and then the bit of the fuck up again just because it's ECW with the bellboy. I don't know what happened there. It did get into the old kind of 10 pun shit and a 5 pun bag. But um, it, it was a good end. It, it did kind of suffer a wee bit just with the time constraints, but um, as a, as an end to a show, I thought they did pretty well. It was a nice moment for Funk. See, a couple of kind of bits here and there aside, it was as good a way to end as I think we could have expected going in. And in some ways, this was a fucking mess. I mean, in some ways, <laughs> it really was. Um, you know, I mean, the... <laughs> Yeah, I don't want to discredit Funk because you say he wasn't around the match before. Fuck all of this match. He got a bit of a beat now. They just lied there for a while while he bled really badly. And then you've got, you know, Dreamers on commentary saying, you know, I promised Terry I wouldn't get involved. Okay, fair enough. And the Raven goads him out. And then, yeah, like, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive Big Dick for the, for the spot in the sense that take the, he didn't want to land perpendicular to where the table was laying because he was worried about his neck, so he kind of wanted to go through parallel to it. The problem was he went through parallel the wrong way round, and so, like, Dreamer to have chokeslammed in that way kind of would have had to have chokeslammed him with his left hand. But because he was chokeslammed with his right hand, the angle never worked. So Dreamer went to put him up, and Big Dick kind of stopped, and then repositioned himself, and they went, oh, fuck it, and just kind of fell backwards. That looked horrible. Well, quite a comical in a way. It was a hell of a bump even so. And the dreamer kind of steams down, and you're like, okay. And, you know, okay, he say he won't get involved now, he but on that big angle. And it all just about worked, but the, the reason the bell rang when the, when Raven kicked out was because that was, that should have been the finish. Mm. Because any normal person would have made the, the DDT from Dreamer be the finish. It would have made a hell of a lot of fucking sense, amongst other things. And instead, like, Raven kicks out, and then Funk just gets up inside Cradles him and wins the match, and you're just like, what the fuck? 
like a, I, I didn't understand that at all. No, I think the, I think the bell boy was basically I think the same as us for it. So that's the finish, right? We're done. God love them because the crowd still popped the second time, which with a crowd like this and what they've been through and all the hype that's went up to this show, they could easily have fell flat for the, for the second time. <laughs> just, just the one guy <laughs> in the crowd going bullshit. Immediately that after could, kicks I, out. I could have died a death. So thankfully that still worked, but. I mean, we, we don't expect high production, do we? It's nice to just have these wee moments that we can talk about. Chris, Chris, any more thoughts? Um, no, pretty much. Sort of, I think we've we've covered it very well so far. Um, it it was it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's ECW in a nutshell. Okay, that, that was one way of segueing out of the answer, I suppose. <laughs> uh, Chris, your overall thoughts on this show and a score any out of ten? Um, it is it is the sort of definite show of two halves. Um, when it's good, it is very very good. When it's bad, it is hideous. And then you know it also gives you the moment of it is the engine that could. Uh, I will give it six. Del. Fucking sex. Are you lazy? Um, I still stand by what I said at the start. I mean, I know, I know I'm maybe a bit more positive than anything else, but to me, it kind of goes back to that old, that old Paul E quote for a couple of years ago. I'm sure it was something David Cactus when it was mind we used to talk about it. Where it's there's going to be other times, but there'll never be another first time. And it's just that's what this was to me. It was like the. It's like a rough trade record or a creation record getting to fight with a fucking Atlantic or Sony or something. And I mean, if you want to look at first pay-per-views, I mean, dare I say we get back what, 13 years to WrestleMania 1. Fuck me, I would rather watch this than WrestleMania because I thought it was awful. And if you look at the budgets and everything that they had involved in it, I thought they did pretty good. And I still think it's possibly one of the... One of the best wall-to-wall shows I've seen in ECW. There was a lot less shit involved for it than what I thought, but maybe I'm biased. But I, I definitely don't think for everything that they've managed to managed to achieve with such little fanfare and for such a such a small a small group today, something that hopefully will go into be so meaningful. I've got to go where I've got to go with at least an eight for me. We have some disparity. Um, objectively, I can call this a good show. Objectively, I'm going to praise this show later on. The show's gone long enough as it is. When we talk about the, the context and the aftermath surrounding the show, whether or not it was a success from, a, from an ECW standpoint, whether it hit the goals that it wanted to hit and whether it entertained the fans that it wanted to entertain, etc., etc. But I think this was a bad show. From a from a bell to bell standpoint, if we were reviewing a, a big ECW live event, you take away the the pay per view context of all of this, and you presented this as a show. There were too many just flawed decisions. There were too many, you know. There was only one, but there was a snoozer of a match. Everything else was fine. There were six, well, there were five good, but the main event's the main event. Nothing really happens, you know, in terms of match quality. There were five good matches. No better, no worse. There was a snoozer match street. Well, the, the six-man, that's a good match. You know, it, it, it's great in some respects, but not in others. And the main event's a bit flat. 
but for me, like this, you know, I, I'm always I'm always more interested in the booking decisions, the storylines, than the 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 bells of bell action. Not that the two necessarily should be mutually exclusive. They got too many things wrong here. Um, from the decision to have Douglas and um, Pitbull two go so long, from the horribly executed post-match stuff within Taz and Sabu. I mean, let's let's call that out for what it was. That was the big angle of the big match, and it sucked. Um, and then right from the main event as well, like it was all going fine. The Raven kicked out the DDT. What the fuck were you doing there? I know that's a minor point, the grand scheme of things. Um, I'll give the show a four out of ten. I want to speak to you. Stevie Richards. Stevie Richards. What the hell are you doing in here? You and I have one final mission together, Stevie Richards. We have one final mission. Oh, uh, you know, what do you mean? Destroy Terry Funk, the Sandman, Tommy Drew. No, you stupid idiot. I want you to dig me out. And my face, Stevie. And my face. End of my life, Stevie. Oh. Take me out, Stevie. Oh. End, oh. end my misery. End my misery, Stevie. End my misery. Oh. Stevie Richards. Oh. End my pain. Oh. Oh. Stevie. Rattle through some TVs. So, uh, as we said before the pay-per-view result, um, week two is pretty much just re-showing of the pre-game um, with a couple of new interviews in there. There is a Fonzie promo where he says that Taz owes him, he hates him, and RVD and Sabu come in to join him in that. We then get a Taz promo where he thanks Sabu for being a bitch, says he would... Uh, Choked him out, and he did. He said he'd kick, he'd kick his head in, and he did. Uh, he loved the fact that he was hoodwinked by Sabu and RVD, and he never needed Fonzie, Team Taz, or any of the fans. After that, we get a promo from Paulie, where he thanks the fans for the chance that they could do a pay-per-view. Week 3 opens with a promo from Rick Rude, where he calls himself the Wicked Witch, as he's broken up the triple friend as Brian Lee wants Francine. Francine and Shane have a promo where he says Rude isn't man enough, it's money that gave him his power now that his body's given up on him. And there's a Raven promo where he goes on about that they have taken everything from him, his woman, his nest, his belt and his followers. Now he has nothing to live for and wants Stevie to come back. We get a match between the FBI and Spike W and Chris Che. Um, this pretty much is a glorified squash match where the FBI win with a roll-up. Uh, we get backstage footage of Chris Candido entering the building with his girlfriend, partner, 
WWF employee Sonny. RVD grabs her ass as she walks past. He then calls out Chris. Then calls out RVD, and they have a bit of a scrap. Um, Sabu comes down as with Fonzie, and for the first time this night, that fucking whistle. Taz comes in to make the save, and then Northern lights Chris. We get another squash match uh, with Balls Mahoney versus a guy called Corporal Punishment. Balls wins nice and quickly. Week four of TV. The FBI in uh, a tag match against the blue do- the BWO, who is the blue guy in Nova. There is no big Stevie to be seen. Again, pretty much generic tag match. Uh, the FBI do heels, cheating and double teaming. Meany gets a hot tag with a moonsault until Tommy Rich uses a foreign object to help them get the win. We then get a music video featuring the Eliminators. Another RVD and Sabu promo where Fonzie says that RVD and Sabu are going to go after the tag division. We then get RVD versus Spike Dudley. Um, RVD pretty much does all his spots. He gets all his range of kicks in, some spinning leg drops, the very pretty looking underhook slam, the five star frog splash, and it finishes with a Van Derminator for the free. After the match, RVD and Sabu attack Spike. We get a Joel Gertner promo where he is joking about the new Beulah t-shirt being cheap and loose until Tommy comes in to beat him down. Louie comes in mocking Tommy, throwing up the too sweet. Um, we're meant to have a match between Louis Pascoli and Chris Che. This ends with Dreamer coming out, jumping Louie. Uh, Tommy crushes his hand in a chair. We then get to finish the month, a Raven promo where he is desolate and wants Stevie to take him out and end his pain and his life. We could probably spend quite a while discussing the TV. I think the only thing of note, uh, well, other than the <laughs> other than the angle itself, was that the angle involving Sonny essentially being sexually assaulted by Rob Van Dam was approved by Vince McMahon. I don't know what that says about Vince McMahon. I don't know what that says about ECW or Sonny or anyone else or the quite bizarre situation that Van Dam grabs Sonny's ass, Candido goes to attack him, and then in about three seconds, Candido gets stormed by a load of guys that apparently are just watching them having this conversation to pull up, pull up the, uh, do the pull apart. There's some other stuff from, from TVs, but as ECW TV months go, this was pretty much a dud. Um, but for, for good reason in some respects. Anyway, the final bit of this show is basically the the other half of the pay-per-view. We did the preview of the first half, obviously the review in the middle, and now we're going to do the kind of aftermath. Um, you know, me putting my objective for how a bit more on looking at, at those kind of things. So, the reaction of the cable companies, as we said at the top, one of the big reasons for this show is basically ECW being able to prove to cable companies they could put on a show that was both extreme but also accessible for the companies. And the early reaction says they were happy with the content. A quote from a request press release said, The results from ECW's, from the pay-per-view premiere of ECW prove that there will certainly be an audience for other wrestling events. 
with little promotion. ECW performed strongly right out of the box despite airing one day after the extremely successful De La Hoya Whitaker pay-per-view fight and competition for attention against the Tigerwood story at the Masters, high-profile NBA games and the key season-ending NHL games. Backstage at the event itself, as we referenced during the show, Down 7 was in attendance. Uh, he was sat, I think, with uh, near Joe Styles at one point. Could have put him through the tables. That would have been different. Uh, Down 7, is, obviously, as UFC listeners know, as the uh, UFC, uh, uh, UFC fighter, but also pro wrestler, NWA champion. Uh, talks about he could come in and he could work Taz. Dean Malenko visited backstage, was asked to leave before the show started. And of all of all combinations of people, one member of Harlem Heat and Nick Patrick were turned away at the door. Um, <laughs> of all people. Because uh, obviously they were in town for Nitro the following night. That's what they were around. And apparently some members of the locker room wanted to start a fight with them. So notes from the show, generator power and TV equipment blew up less than a minute after the match, we said that already. Uh, Bob Ray Dudley broke his ankles during the opener, and a quote from Eric Bischoff said, I'm surprised, quite frankly, it did as well as it did. I think Paul Heyman and everyone at ECW should be proud of what they accomplished and should be congratulated for succeeding, in spite of all adversity and obstacles that were in their way. Other notes, we kind of touched on this at the top. Uh, sellout crowd, the gate was just obliterated their, their record. And Bischoff seems to be the most concrete source we've got, saying they're around 40,000 buys. Um, Dale, the show's gone long enough, and we can't discuss all this anyway, but from a, a more objective sense and a more ECW business sense, you know, pulling to extent your very positive review of the show, my quite negative review of the show, away for a sec. Um, this was a big success, this show. Yep, um, I think we'll be more kind of meeting in the same kind of ballpark now. We, we just kind of what this means. If, I mean, everybody's been honest about it with the builds that we've seen in the the talks. They observed that everybody and their mother knew that we were never going to be making kind of heading for the sunset on the back of the gates for this one or kind of making money. Or everybody's going to be under a an ironclad contract for ten years because it, it was never going to be that. But um, even just making the kind of waves that they've done and. I know, I know Atlanta was in town the next night, or kind of the Monday for the Nitro. Um, but I mean, it's getting people at that turning up, and then just just getting people talking about this company is just something that we, we couldn't. I mean, could we have seen this three years ago when we were talking still about Eastern and kind of this wee company that's before before Coraluzo and everything turned up? It was just it's just nice to see that in this day and age with the the millions that one of them's got and the billions that the other ones got that, that somebody can actually succeed and do something off their own back and it's just you kind of talk about all the tension in the, the locker room and everything it just makes you proud to actually be a better wrestling fan and kind of seeing that this can this can happen I mean being away for W uh, being on WCW sorry being away for ECW for a wee while the, the drop with Joey at the end talking about the August show was actually a surprise to me I'd Kind of tried to stay away for anything post show that came through before the tape for the pay per view, and I'm thankful what I did because that was a wee pop for me, knowing that they're going to be back doing it all over again in a couple of months, and let's just see how they can how they can take through what they've learnt for us and make it grow, and hopefully make it into something financially viable as well as critically. Chris, I think um, as you're saying that the the feedback coming from the providers was that they were happy that the level of what the product did, the show did, that, you know, it wasn't too extreme. There wasn't any sort of, you know, anything 
sort of sexually wrong or any violence against women or anything like that on there, which obviously we all know is staples of what we see on ECW TV. Um, so knowing that they can play within a set of rules may mean that, because uh, uh, I believe, is it, is it DirecTV, which is like the main US pay-per-view company, I didn't take this. So obviously, if if they've already got this, that they can go look. When we were on there, we were told this is what we could do. We've done that. Maybe the directs of the world may then take them on for the next time they they do a show, and it gets more houses that can have the show. You know, because as you said, pretty much everyone's gone with a, a fairly positive sort of feedback from it that. Wrestling fans are gonna probably have a take a chance on it if if they've got more houses that can have it because they've got on the bigger bigger of the pay per view networks it can only just sort of go bigger and bigger and bigger for them and better um as you said, this was never gonna be the big money making sort of thing Pe- you know poorly and the and the boys weren't gonna get rich and be able to retire off this one show but the fact that what they have achieved by doing this show can mean that they can keep doing shows and go on pay-per-view for a second time a third time and you know who knows they could get four big shows a year yeah it it's it's sort of taking the baby steps to get going to what you know, could could be whatever they want their end goal to be. They've they've proved that if you have the spirit and the drive to do something and you know, never say die and never give up attitude, it can work for you and as I said, it's got there now. Yeah. Um this has been a long road for ECW. Um you know, they've had help. They've, you know, they've had investment, but they've they, they've not bought their way to this position. Let's be honest, they've fought their way to this position. Um, and this, you know, there's there's the perception this was the the culmination. In many ways, this was the start. That you know, if ECW wanna, you know, they're not gonna bridge the gap to the WWF or WCW. They're they're giants. But if ECW wants to make something out of this niche and wants to become something more than just this you know, this little rickety promotion out of Philadelphia, this was a massive step for them. And yeah, as we kind of said, all the stuff that happened and, you know, we, we talk about people that were on this card, he was kind of injured, but New Jack, not so conspicuous in his absence. Um, you know, we talk about all the stuff that went on before. There's there's a lot of misconceptions about ECW, about what it is and what it's not. I've spoken about those before, about the comparisons with ECW, uh, with UFC, sorry, and, and shoot fighting and things like that. And this was a this was kind of a primer. This was ECW showing people what they're about and showing people that they could be taken seriously. Um, yeah, we didn't speak about it much, but the upgrade visually was fantastic. Like, in many ways, like I, I, I took about half an hour to adjust my eyes. It didn't look like an ECW show, it looked like a a better produced show using ECW talent for the first forty-five minutes. Um, but yeah, like they've earned this one. Um, you know, and it 
whether they make any money or not, my suspicion is they won't, but it sounds like they haven't lost bank on it, which is good. Um, and the real challenge now, like I talk about this being the culmination, the way, I th- the, way the, the reason I said this is the start, and there's some great stuff in the Wrestling Observer, yeah, there has been for the last six months covering UFC, but also this about how other companies have, have fared on pay-per-view, both wrestling and, and, and mixed martial arts. And the pattern generally seems to be that the first show generally does quite well relative to the, the ceiling of where people think it will be at. The big challenge is the next show. And that's what we're going to get to watch in the next few months is how they build to that show in August. Talk about doing that show away from the ECW arena, which is an interesting step. Talk about perhaps doing it in a bigger building, even in another city, which is an interesting step. But that's in many ways going to be the next big challenge is that if they got dropped because the cable companies were worried, they can send this tape to all the big cable companies and say, this is our pay-per-view model. Will you show us? And there's no real reason why they... It's very unlikely they won't get more exposure and more penetration on the next card. But the question is, is that a lot of people would have bought the show for the novelty just because it's another wrestling show. There'll be a lot of hardcore too. But the next show is the challenge. What can you do when you've only got three months build up rather than six? What can you do without Raven? What can you do without some of these big names? That's the big challenge. But as much as I had gripes about this show, and I still do, about some of the booking decisions on, on, on that kind of level of analysis, that this show was not a huge success in a lot of respects. And the main one being that ECW passed a significant test in their relatively short lifespan. And that is where we will bring a conclusion to the show. We've got about two hours, 45 minutes there. Bloody hell. Uh, a big thank you to Dale Muir. Dale, thank you very much. Apologies for always taking you out of the two and a half hours, Bob, but it was a pleasure. It's all right. It's all right. Uh, Dale, where can people find you on Twitter? Yep, Twitter, Dale underscore Muir. I've only got 140 characters, so it doesn't quite drag on as long. And, and people can more easily call you out on your bullshit as well. I have to, I have to well, I think I can understand what I'm actually saying because I do, as you know, type as I talk. So there is that. There is that. Yes, you, you certainly do. The, uh, the there isn't a uh, a mode on Twitter for jock in the language, <laughs> but uh, you try, you try. Chris Lacey, Chris, thank you very much. You're welcome. It's it's good that we've sort of had this moment where we uh, finally get ECW on pay per view. And we yes, got the band yeah. back together, Lacey. Yes. The, yeah, the old school boys are back. Just for the one show, but there was uh, there was no other lineup we were ever going to be able to go with for this show, so I'm glad we were able to uh, put it together. Chris, tell us about where people can find you on Twitter and about all of your podcasts. Well, you can find me for my rants on just stuff on Lacey555666. Uh, you can follow the the history of WCW um, all the way back to 1993, where we are at the moment with Super Rules, which you can find at Super Rules on on iTunes. Search Super Rules. We, by the time this goes out for mass consumption, we would have had just released Super Brawl Free. And if you want to have an interest in music, bit of everything in there, you know, no sort of definite sort of scene, you can listen to my music podcast, Show and Tell with Tunes, on uh, iTunes, uh, or it's S Tell with Tunes on Twitter. Um, there should be a couple of episodes up in the next few days, which obviously have been out already. Um, usually try to get one up a week, so, you know, 
about an hour's worth of free music and sort of, you know, for you to enjoy and see if you like. There we are, there we are. Yes, uh, to the volume this month, volume number two, WWF, looking at the latest in your house and all the fallout from WrestleMania. Volume number three takes the WCW and Spring Stampede. A reminder that if you would like to, you can find us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com forward slash wrestling 20 YRS for five bucks a month if you'd like to say thank you and or to get access, early access to shows like these. This show's going to be up about a couple of weeks before. Uh, release for those people that are on Patreon. So if you'd like to get out early access shows like this when they are ready, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash wrestling20rs. Links in the podcast description and on our website. Website is wrestling20rs.com. You can find all of our back episodes, blogs and everything else. There's going to be a piece on the site looking at uh, the road to barely legal, which will document in a bit more detail the uh, uh, the ECW's kind of journey from kind of the middle of last year through up until this show so that'll be on the site by the time this show goes out uh, and that'll do that I've been Bob Bamber this has been volume number one of the April 1997 edition of the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast and until next time goodbye